VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, May the 9th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's have a great show. That can only happen if you join us live on the air to discuss a topic of your choosing. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211 or elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So about to complain about the socked-in conditions again here in Metro, but then I hear about some of the extended snowfall in different parts of the the province, so I guess I'll just clam up and be thankful I'm not shoveling this afternoon. All right, yesterday we talked about the fact that the good news in the hockey circles is that the Boyle Trophy is back in action. Of course, presented by then Newfoundland Governor uh, Sir Cavendish Boyle back in 1903, it was competed for by senior hockey teams until the early 70s, went away, sporadically brought back up for high school competition. So I told I told everybody that, but neglected to even say who the winner was of the Boyle Trophy this past weekend. So it was the Clarenville Cougars. They won. So the group was made up of, see here, five grade 12s, two grade 11s, seven grade 10s. They played with one defenseman and two forwards short the entire tourney. So shorthanded and still came out on top. The Clarenville Cougars are the Boyle Trophy champions. Congratulations to them. And the Growlers back in action tonight versus the Reading Royals up to love in the series. So let's see what happens there. And watching the NHL, you know, one of Canada's real, I guess the only real hope to make it any further in the Stanley Cup playoffs is the Edmonton Oilers. They scored first last night, then Vegas came back with five straight to get a 5-1 win. So the Oilers trail in that series, two games to one. McDavid and Dreisaitl kept off the score sheet. It's only the second game of the playoffs that uh, Dreisaitl has been kept off. But anyway... And many hockey fans were watching the NHL draft lottery last night, and the Chicago Blackhawks win the Connor Bedard lottery. I mean, he's a once-in-a-generation type of player being compared to the Connor McDavid, Sidney Crosby's of the world. It's the first time that Chicago won the lottery since 2007 where they picked Patrick Kane. Of course, between Kane and Taves, led Chicago to three Stanley Cups, so it's amazing and it's all lining up quite nicely for the Blackhawks. You can really build a team around the likes of Bedard. So, Kane gets traded to the Rangers. Taves is gone as a Blackhawk. I don't know if he's going to play any more NHL hockey, but now they get a crack at young Connor Bedard, and he is a sensation. Anyway, let's keep going. All right, these stories kind of get under my skin, I gotta say. Salton Harbor Grace last night, there was a 37-year-old charged after he was spotted going 120 kilometers an hour in a 50-kilometer zone. So the police attempted to pull him over. He wouldn't stop. And, of course, this uh, mastermind criminal finds himself on a dead-end street and then gets apprehended by police, charged with a number of traffic infractions, including flight from police. So 120 in the 50 zone. On top of it, unregistered vehicle, no insurance, suspended license, owed $7,000 plus in fines. So what do we do about these things, right? The one thing about the numbers of the amount of money owed in fines doesn't always have to be simply about traffic infractions. It could be all kinds of things where fines are still unpaid. But on that front, I wonder what you think. You know, I'm in support of the pending pilot project to install speed cameras around different parts of the province. I think it's a good idea. There's also some talk of putting cameras on school buses to nab those who are willing to pass a school bus with the flashing red lights and the stop sign dispatched. So, what do you think of that? Stick with the travel, but this time go to the air. I don't know if you're planning on doing some travel this summer season, but obviously demand 
is pent up. And airports are telling us that they won't see a replay of the lost baggage and the lineups that we saw over the holiday season and in parts of last year. People want to get back out there. St. John's International Airport reported last week in their AGM that last year they were around 74% of pre-pandemic traffic volume. So they're expecting a pretty good season this year. The notable airport where many of us have to pass through, regardless of where you're going, is probably Toronto's Pearson. And it was an absolutely chaotic mess last year. They've hired some 10,000 new employees, increased about 22% of the ranks. 50,000 people work at Pearson International. So they think that they're going to be able to avoid the mess that was travel last year but if you want to take it on and talk about it we can do exactly that stick it with flight this time with search and rescue we spoke with Marip Wiseman yesterday and talked about the fact that at the liberal policy convention they did adopt a policy talking about making five wing goose bay a permanent full-time search and rescue base now policies being adopted at a convention don't mean they're actually going to make it into reality or come to fruition, but it's a good start. And so yesterday there was actually some incredible video of members of the 103 Search and Rescue Squadron rescuing a crew member from a fishing vessel about 330 kilometers from Goose Bay and successfully got the crew member, brought him to the hospital. But Labrador has long been overlooked regarding search and rescue capacity. So hopefully that policy that was adopted will indeed become reality on the ground with a cormorant full-time crew uh, at Five Wing Goose. No real understanding if it's going to include fixed-wing aircraft in an effort to search at sea, but it has to happen because everybody knows the risks associated with being out on the merciless North Atlantic. All right, speaking of the merciless North Atlantic, so people are waiting to hear what might happen with Beta Nord and Equinor's decision based on their business numbers. So they say at 35 bucks a barrel, they can make a go out of it out there. And we know now there's at least a billion barrels of recoverable oil. On that front, Equinor has been in Brazil for a couple of decades, and they have said that only the best projects will get capitalized or get capital and move forward. Yesterday, they committed to a $9 billion investment in a Brazil offshore gas field. It's producing oil out there, but they say that the gas out there can be about 15% of the gas used in Brazil. So I know people don't necessarily care about the Brazilian investment, but when Equinor has said clearly only the best projects, the most profitable projects will proceed, yesterday pulled the trigger on $9 billion billion dollars off of Brazil so we'll see what becomes of that pending decision here and a lot of people you know there's going to be voices on both sides where oil is an important part of the economy royalties of the government jobs to be created and neither side is wrong it's whether government has an appetite provincially and federally to continue to explore allow exploration and obviously this province is all in on oil right they've been quite clear that they need and want to see Beta Nord move forward whether it be with issues regarding jobs onshore and subsea work or whatever you want to talk about but on that front you know exploration has long been the key for momentum for the oil and gas industry we'll say gas because i think there's some gas plays potentially in the offing but the high burning oil field of course cleared a billion barrels last year it looks like there's at least a billion barrels out at equinor's beta nord play but the exploration set to take place by bp which is the british energy giant they've got the stena ice max ship in bay bulls going to do some exploration over the course of two to five months in the Orphan Basin, but this oil field will be the be-all and end-all. I don't know if there's ever going to be more oil production in this province. I don't think anybody really knows. But just consider the fact that Hibernia has been an economic boom. Beta Nord would be the exact same. But the oil field that they're drilling out here that's called uh, Atheus may indeed contain some 3 billion barrels of recoverable oil 
or more. And ExxonMobil, of course, also going to do some exploration in the Jean d'Arc Basin uh, this year, about 75 days at sea. And exploration comes with jobs, about 400 for every one of these exploration exercises. Production generally adds up to about 4,000. So oil, whether you're in on the yes, let's go, let's explore, let's produce, and or some of the caution has been voiced globally regarding the need or the lack thereof for any new oil fields. We're happy to take on both sides of that. Okay. Also continue to hear from families about their concerns for their loved ones who are residents in long-term care facilities and personal care homes. There's an ongoing review. Now, we've heard the good stories, like George Faulkner and Mr. Miss Paddock, who got married as they bumped into each other in a long-term care facility. But, of course, some of the more dire concerns being addressed inside this review, the one issue that I have not heard government talk about, you know, they'll talk about staffing levels, and we'll get to that in a second, and, of course, that's all important. But the numbers that continue to pop into my head every time I hear about long-term care are the ones that I've brought forward many, many times. And that's the number of residents in long-term care who are in physical restraints. And, you know, the quote that I will always recall from reading that news story was, he felt like he was being punished, and that was pretty heartbreaking, and that was the daughter of a man who was in restraints in long-term care. The national average is 6.5% of residents in restraints in this province, this is the most recent data we can find, is 14.2%. So there's a huge disparity between those numbers. Add to it, and I hope this is being considered to try to find out how and why this is happening. The percentage of residents in long-term care in this province taking antipsychotic drugs uh, national average, 21.9%. In this province, 38.3%. So there's something patently wrong with those numbers. And if there's not something patently wrong, maybe we can be told or have a better explanation as to why the numbers are the way they are. And some of the concerns extended inside long-term care is just how many beds are unoccupied. And that's because they don't have the staff for those beds. So that has implications in hospitals with backlogs for surgeries and what have you. Now, I heard Minister Osborne on the VOC Morning Show talking about the recruitment of nurses and getting it right in long-term care with having the LPNs, registered nurses, personal care attendants is going to be a great place to start to deal with some of the backlogs and congestion in the healthcare system. So I think I heard him say they've recruited some 400 nurses in the past year. Good. The problem is, is that f additional 400 means the nursing levels are about the same. So some 400 left, whether they be retired or they moved off to one of those private agencies or whatever. So it's absolutely good news that 400 were recruited, but it has increased the registered nursing tally here in the province. So a bit of a wash on that front, and we're happy to take that chat on. And also, these uh, uh, paramedics reach out to me all the time about the uncertainty regarding the ambulance services here. And one of the only announcements that caught any new attention on Budget Day most recently in Newfoundland and Labrador was regarding the plan to consolidate some 60 contracts into one publicly operated ambulance service, ground ambulance we're talking about specifically here. So they're bringing in a consultant, what do you know? But we don't really understand a timeline, whether or not that consultant has been hired and where we are and who's having some input into what the new operations will look like. So they also talk about exemptions in some more rural, isolated communities where it won't be part of the public service. So obviously that means there'll be a private contractor brought, brought on. But the questions that the paramedics are asking are really quite fundamental is, you know, what does the system even look like? Is it a hub and spoke and consequently might not make it any better for wait times and access to an ambulance here, regardless of where you live? And will there be fewer ambulances? 
consequently fewer paramedics or will it be status quo regarding the number of ambulances and paramedics in the province because the unfortunate reality is whether it be the Smith's ambulance contract out of Whitburn or Fewer's operations paramedics are leaving and if we've already got a shortage across the board seemingly in healthcare professionals if paramedics are going to leave in droves because we've been waiting years for this review to take place they've been waiting years to find out what the eventual landscape will look like for them and their profession and consequently their families and whether or not they're willing to stay so we're still looking for that information on your behalf paramedics and of course all the residents who may indeed be the next person that needs a first responder like a paramedic let's move off to criminal justice for a second so i read a story this morning it was a letter written by the chief justice of the supreme court richard wagner pretty harshly worded apparently asking why the federal government, why the Prime Minister and Minister Lametti have been dragging their feet, so asserts the Chief Justice, about appointing more federal judges. So he's very concerned. He says that there's a high number of vacancies in the Superior and Appeal Courts, 85 empty bench positions out of approximately 1,200. Goes on to say that 10 to 15 percent of their judicial positions are vacant. So that's going to compromise and have an impact on whether it be criminal or civil cases. It becomes a little bit more concerning because remember back when the Supreme Court brought forward a ruling in R versus Jordan, which means that criminal cases with, have to be heard within a period of 30 months unless there's exceptional circumstances, of which there's a variety of issues inside exceptional circumstances. So now, Chief Justice Wagner says, the courts are having to prioritize certain cases. So whether it be sexual assault or murder, and consequently, some other criminal cases that might not be as severe will fall in under the Jordan ruling and won't be heard. Charges will be dismissed, and those who have been accused will get to walk free without their day in court, which for them, some of them who are potentially guilty, will be a get-out-of-jail-free card. So what is the holdup? The government can go on and say that they've appointed X number of judges over the course of the uh, number of years since 2015, but if the Chief Justice, who knows much more about it, for instance, than, I guess, politicians and the impact inside the court system, there is, I think, a fair question as to how and why this is happening. He states in Alberta, for example, almost a quarter of their criminal cases, most of them related to serious and violent crimes, exceeded the 30-month uh, timeline. So, you know, when we have certain issues, and it's, I guess, been exacerbated over the last number of years, about the faith in and the integrity of institutions such as the criminal court system, or the civil court system, and a variety of other democratic institutions. And, of course, some of that will be directly related to some of the ongoing concern about foreign bad actors and interference in elections. So I'm really not sure what to make of some of these stories because some of the timelines and veracity are a little bit murky. On Monday, Canada expelled a Chinese diplomat. And in the diplomatic tit-for-tat, China expelled one of our diplomats. And this is all about the case where Michael Chong has come forward, a conservative member Michael Chong, to say that the Chinese diplomat had been taunting or threatening his family in China. Mr. Chong speaking out about the Chinese government treatment of the Uyghurs. And consequently, that seems to have been the pushback, the backlash. So... It does continue to beg the question, the who knew what when. So Mr. Chong says that he's pleased that this diplomat has been expelled, but he wonders why it took two years for it to happen. So some of those timelines, again, become a little bit curious. But anyway, the whole issue in Ottawa with the special rapporteur, David Johnson's reporters do on the 23rd of this month, and where we go from there. I think the consensus across the country is, even if it, in your mind it might not be 100% necessary, 
But I do think it's going to be important that a public inquiry be the outcome here. We cannot go down the road that we see south of the border with the complete erosion in faith for many Americans in their electoral system. In this country, we absolutely have free and fair elections that are quite, Elections Canada does a bang up job as far as anybody can tell. Elections have not been stolen in this country, I don't think. So if we don't get it, in the air of transparency, if there's no public inquiry, I think we're going to see a real backlash, and it might be the potential undoing of the Liberals as the seat of government. What do you think? Let's talk about it. And you want to have some input into government policy and Independent Appointments Commission? You can do exactly that. David Conway is leading the review of the Independent Appointments Commission Act. This was the very first bill brought forward by the Liberal government here provincially, Bill 1. And what the Independent Appointments Commission does is when there's an opening at an agency or a board or a commission, they will evaluate the best candidates, bring forward a list of three to cabinet. At that point, though, cabinet can either select a name off that list or select someone who's not on the list. So it's always felt like it's, you know, a little bit of smoke and mirror sometimes associated with this. But if you'd like to have input into it, uh, the report is due on the 31st of May, so you're going to have to get at it. And, of course, we're not forgetting about the concerns on the water regarding snow crab, and it's hard to know whether or not that fishery will get executed this year. And, of course, tributes continue to pour in via email regarding the passing of fisheries advocate uh, Gus Etchegary, former president of Fisheries Product International, Canadian Soccer Hall of Famer, former president of Canada Soccer, whatever angle you want to take on, speaking to Mr. Etchegary's role in the province. And, of course, he was there as a child when an earthquake and tsunami hit, hit the community of St. Lawrence. A number of people were killed. Many people, hundreds were homeless. And, of course, the disaster, the Truxton and the Pollocks, and he was actually part of that as well as a 17-year-old, so fascinating life to say the very least. We're on Twitter. We're VOSIM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOSIM.com. When we take this break, you pick up the phone. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Good morning, Jack. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad, thanks. How are you doing? Uh, not too good. I'm uh, basically bedridden, have been for a nice while. But uh, I didn't call about that. I, uh, I'm calm about that news story I just heard about a man driving so fast in Harbour Race. And 120 uh, kilometres an hour in a 50 kilometre an hour zone, yep. Yeah, and then he was caught and he owes over $7,000 in fines. Right. I don't think we're ever going to see the $7,000 from him or from a lot more. But I mentioned this particular topic a few years ago. And I must say, the uh, moderator at that time basically laughed at me when I made my suggestion. And uh, anyway, I said to him, I said, those people are getting away, and those fines are building up because they're being charged, and, and that's it. They don't pay their fines, and nothing can be done about it. And I, I suggested at the time that when anyone is caught like that, going over the speed limit, for any uh, miles per hour they are over the speed limit, like he was doing, you said, uh, just refresh my memory. 70 kilometers over the posted speed limit, yeah. Okay. I think he should be, his car should be taken from, or, well, this place is a stolen car, but I think he should be, I don't know if you put him in jail or not, but they must be confined not to be able to drive for the, for 70 days, not to be able to walk for it, but do a lot of community service. 
And there's a lot of community services that they can do with uh, provincial and, and municipal governments. And when people got to stay off their jobs and do this community service because of these fines and this neglect for the law, I think you'll find a lot of people slowing down. Because it's not only that one case. You take the cases of the people on the highways in the morning trying to get out to the lucrative jobs in Cumberjance and Long Harbour and places like that. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, you know. And I think that's one way to curb it. Possibly. Uh, so he was uh, driving an unregistered vehicle, no insurance. He had a suspended license. So there's a lot to this particular case. A lot, lot, of, lot of people have made the case that, you know, if you are caught and you owe X amount of money to the government, and sometimes we've heard stories where people owe $30,000 in outstanding yeah. fines. You know, the whole concept of the chain gang. You know, whether it be on litter patrol or cleaning graffiti off public buildings or, right. or doing what have you, I don't think that's a terrible idea the only thing i would say to it because something has to be done because you know you when you said that we're not getting that seven thousand dollars you're probably 100 percent right because it feels like you know blood out of a turnip yep. but there does come some costs associated with creating chain gangs or having been put to work in the community sector because there have to be some oversight right so you've got some liabilities associated with uh, them having supervisors in place and what they're doing and who they are and whether or not they have a criminal background so there's a lot of things that has to be considered but I will not laugh at nor will I argue your point that if there's a possibility to recoup some effort as opposed to money why not let's uh, let's examine it let's have a conversation to see what it looks like and what we can actually do here? Well, that's what I suggested before, and I think I think myself it could probably work, you know, because I know it might be a cost that it would be over that is unre- it's not going to come close to what the cost is he's costing to taxpayers right now. I can't remember the total of outstanding fines that have not been paid here because it comes in a variety of fronts. It could be about illegal tobacco or there's a bunch of things inside the outstanding fines envelope. But if I'm not mistaken, we're talking millions in outstanding fines. So there's a lot of work to be done for that. When I lived in Alberta, this was for those who were incarcerated, not necessarily simply owed fines to the government. The chain gang was alive and well. They'd be doing litter across the sides of the highways and what have you, and you'd see their armed guards, of course, watching the incarcerated inmates out there doing that type of work. So there is a way to mimic it, and as you rightfully point out, there's no end to the number of things that they could be doing. That's right. I, I, I firmly believe there's, there's, a, there's room for thought here and, and discussion, but like I said, I put it, be, I didn't suggest it before, and the moderator actually laughed at me, and uh, I, I gave up on it, you know. I said, well, why am I going to be humiliated calling in there like that? And, but it seems to be getting worse every day. Well, as someone who drives around this neck of the woods, you know, whether it be the number of vehicles we know for sure that are not roadworthy, those that are likely unregistered, the number of people we hear getting caught without a valid license or insurance, it happens far too frequently. Now, will they be deterred? I think that's another part of this discussion, Jack, is will anybody actually be deterred 
by imposing those types of potential to be on the chain gang or doing community service because when we've stiffened uh, sentences inside the criminal justice system, it hasn't necessarily meant that people wouldn't commit the crimes. You know, even in places, say, for instance, where there's capital punishment for uh, murder one, they still have murders. So I I wonder would it slow people down? I think in conjunction with that and the speed cameras and some other measures we might be able to take, quite possibly. And that would be a positive outcome for everyone who's, whether you're a motorist or a pedestrian or on your, uh, your, your pedal bike or what have you, make it safer for all of us, which I think is the ultimate goal. And that's exactly right, Patty. And I thank you for your time and, and accept my call and discuss on this this morning. I appreciate your time, Jack. Take good care of yourself. You too, buddy. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, there's no need to scoff at those types of suggestions because maybe it can work, but I guess we have to flesh it out and see exactly how it would be structured. Uh, let's go to line one. Murray, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. First comment, I don't think our Maple Leafs are going to make much history this year anymore. Doesn't look like it, Jack, or pardon me, Murray. There's only been four teams that have come back from a three-love series, uh, trailing in a series 3 nothing, and that's, you know, most recent, I think, was the Kings in 2014, but the Leafs look like they are deflated and done, rolled over. Unless the big guns boysens up. Yeah, but they didn't look too wise last time out. Anyway, Patty, I gotta, I've been calling you about the Fiona funding and everything up here on the Southwest Coast. Yesterday, I got a letter, not a letter, a paragraph in the mail. It goes, you know who, introduction. After listening to Talkback the last few months, I've had enough of you and your crap, I'll say, that's been spewing from your mouth. It's unfortunate you're too stunned to get the funding. This is the final straw, the final warning. If you need feel the need to flap your gums to anyone in the near future, give me a call, and I'll fix that big effing mouth of yours. No signature. Yikes. So Does that sound to you, Patty, like someone trying to hide something, trying to get away with something that they've done wrong? It certainly could be read that way. No argument coming from me. And I'm guessing that what is... All, there's a bunch of problems associated with that. For stars, it's a threat, and the, that belongs in the hands of the RNC. But in addition to it, we can only assume it's the stories you've told us about people purposely damage, damaging their own property to get Fiona money. But nobody's ever named any names, so obviously there's a guilty conscience here somewhere. Unfortunate you're too stunned to get the funding. I mean, what? <laughs> yeah, there's no IQ test associated with Fiona funding. No. So, I just ask your word, what would you think of this letter? Well, it sounds like a very clear threat, uh, and obviously you've done what the letter warns you not to do, so I wonder will anything happen as a result of this telephone call. But, I mean, for me, simply, I think I just put it in the hands of the RNC so they're aware of it. They are. Our CMP are aware of it. Okay. But if this man or person had guts enough to write their name or put their phone number there. I would personally go and have a check with them. Might not be the best thing, but uh, that's up to you, uh, of course. Yes, that's what I've been told. Yeah. But 
it's not up to me to give you any advice. You're a full-grown man. You'll do as you see oh, fit. Yes. But I would, if it was me and receiving that letter, I'd simply do what you've done and put it in the hands of law enforcement, and then I'd let them to take over. I don't think uh, an encounter is very wise at this point because you might not know exactly who you're dealing with and what they're capable of or willing to do. That's right, Patty. It is in the hands of the RCMP. That's good. And well, that was something I was going to say. As for this too stunned to get the funding, it seems to me that somebody got the funding that don't deserve it. Maybe. And my funding is being processed. I didn't think that I had to steal. My house was half sacrificed, half destroyed here. I didn't think I had to be dishonest and steal and destroy anything to get the proper funding that I deserve here. Well, hopefully you do get the funding for the damage that you've suffered. I still think it's uh, incumbent on a variety of levels uh, or organizations, including the provincial government, to let us know exactly where all the money is going and where it's gone uh, thus far. Uh, Murray, I appreciate the update, sir, and let's see what the RCMP do. But if I was you, I'd just let that unfold organically well, and stay away I from it. I can't do anything, Patty, because the coward didn't have guts enough to write their name down. You know, a yellow belly. He should have signed, at least signed it yellow belly. You know. Understood. <laughs> I appreciate this. You take care of yourself. Take care, Patty. Thanks I'll, for taking my call. Anytime, Murray. All the best. <laughs> Bye-bye. Yeah, anyway, that's something else. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Liberal Member of Parliament, elected in and serving the folks of Scarborough or Southwest. He's the Minister of Emergency Preparedness. That's Bill Blair. Minister Blair, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much. So I'm going to start with emergency preparedness, but there's so much little interesting things inside your portfolio, but I believe this is emergency preparedness week. What's the role of the federal government in spreading awareness on this front? Well, you know, we've seen right across the country the increase in the severity and frequency of weather-related events. Newfoundland's been no stranger to that in the past year with the the fires that took place in in central Newfoundland and, of course, the impact of Fiona, particularly down in Port Basque and, and areas in the southwest. Um, there's, it's, it's, it's really important that people be aware of, of the, the, their risks. And, and one of the good things about the, good, the people, the good people in Newfoundland, they, they are well tied to the, to, to the sea and to the land. But, but it's very important for people to understand their risks, to be prepared uh, to respond appropriately. To, and, and there's some very simple things that people can do to keep themselves safe and, and, and their families safe and, and to reduce the likelihood of the damage and, that, that so many have experienced. There are, and I mean, I know this is absolutely important conversation. Lives were lost during Fiona. One lady was swept out to sea. And, you know, whether it be protecting your own uh, homestead, your house, uh, your fishing stage, or what have you, and your own life, there's going to be very simple tips that could be applied. Let's get a couple of those out quickly because I do have some other questions for you. Yeah, for, for, for sure, Patty. And, and one of the things we tell people to do is, is put together a bit of an emergency kit, you know, with, with batteries and, and with first aid kit and, some, some, and put, put enough food aside to get you through about 72 hours. Because we saw when some of these events hit, people's communications get cut off. You know, there's, the hydro goes down very quickly, and, and as it did through uh, Atlantic Canada with Fiona. And there are things that people can do to get themselves through that first 72 hours. And there's things that they can do around the house, and you already mentioned it, with, 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 with your, 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 your business or with your, your, your garden. And, and there are things that you can do to make your house a little safer um, in a high wind event or, or, when, or, or when the water's up. And it's really important as well to listen carefully to the, to the advice of officials. 
you know, right across this country, we've got some outstanding emergency management personnel. We put out uh, weather alerts and information for people, and it's important that they, they, they listen to those, and but also take the advice that's offered by local officials because they'll give you the best advice on how to be safe. Weather is one thing, but inside your portfolio, talking about emergencies and disasters can be radiological, nuclear, biological, chemical, and many of those may be at risk with the advent now of the nuisance hackers. I mean, we saw our Meditech system, our healthcare system infiltrated by some Russian hackers, whether it be with water treatment facilities or nuclear power plants or what have you. Attention to cybersecurity has got to be a keen focus for individuals, provincial and federal governments, because so much of it, not only our personal data, but, you know, whether it be the electrical grid or inside a power plant or water treatment facility, where are we? Because, you know, some of this work will happen very quietly, but if the hackers are able to infiltrate the Pentagon, then anything is up for grabs. Well, and, and Patty, you're not right. And we saw we saw even in Newfoundland that that, that hackers infiltrated some of the data systems out there and had a real impact on people. And and so we have an organization. I'm also responsible for for cybersecurity and 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 the threat of cyber attacks. There are hostile actors in, in, in state various states around the world, and there's a lot of criminal enterprises. They they undertake things like denial of service attacks. They they, they ransomware attacks. And it's really important that people be aware of, of you know, the, the vulnerability of, of their information systems. We've all become so reliant on da- data in our businesses and the health services that are provided, for example, in our financial operations and in our daily lives. And so it's important that people understand the risks and that they, they practice good what we call cyber hygiene so that you don't, you don't get drawn into some of these scabs and, and give away your personal information because there are criminals out there that will take advantage of it. But within the government, we've got an organization called the Community Security Establishment, Communication Security Establishment. They do an excellent job working with the provincial territorial governments and with businesses right across the country in helping them become more resilient and, and protect their systems against these attacks. And, you know, the, the, even the government of Canada is attacked several thousand times a day. And so we're constantly vigilant. And, and we've, we've built a lot of strength and resiliency into our information systems, but it's but it's but it's a daily endeavor because there are lots of people out there trying to take advantage of us, and it's really important because we've become so reliant on our on our cyber systems that we make sure that we keep them safe. Has there been an instance of ransomware with the federal government in the last, well, let's say, five years? Yes, there has, and and, and I'll tell you that it's it, it's it's. We, we've seen these things attacks on financial institutions, on provincial and municipal governments. They, they are taking place across the country. It's a matter for, of criminal investigation. Of course, these are very serious crimes, but it's also important that we, we make the investment into our systems to keep them secure in the first place. But the, the, those those are matters that are always under investigated very thoroughly by our, our national security intelligence establishment and the RCMP. Has the federal government paid a ransom? No, sir. No, sir, we have not. And and and, and frankly, I my own personal opinion is is that is that when you pay those ransoms off, you're just encouraging future criminal activity. We've we've conducted some very thorough investigations. Some and and these guys aren't easy to catch because they're often you know in, in a foreign country and and they they they're good with their, their their cyber systems, but but and 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 so we have to always remain vigilant. But we don't do anything that's going to encourage future criminal activity, and we and we want to encourage everybody else to make sure that they stay safe, and that's why we've been working really carefully with businesses and governments right across the country to help help keep them safe and resilient. Let's talk about democratic institutions and or agencies, commissions of the federal government. Let's start with the foreign interference in the 19 and 21 elections, because emergency preparedness would also have a distinct impact on whether or not people have faith in elections, the integrity and the protection of our vote. So what's your ministerial role 
insofar as that goes and then of course ultimately would you be in vocal support of a public inquiry because the electorate's faith in elections Canada and in our ability to vote and have it fairly counted is going to be paramount we've learned hard lessons over the last couple of years here about other countries including just south of our border about that faith and the erosion therein what's your role in that that vein well, P- Patty, before I, I had my current role in government, I was the public safety minister, mm-hmm. and I was responsible uh, for, for, for those investigations. And I just want to back it up. First of all, I'm in 100% agreement that protecting all of our institutions and the integrity of our elections is absolutely essential, and people have to have confidence in the integrity of, of their vote and, 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 and their elections. And so when I was public safety minister, and this is going back to more than two years ago, I actually tabled a report in Parliament. I sent, I sent a copy of it to every member of Parliament, warning them about foreign interference in our elections, including the interference of the People's Republic of China. Um, I, I gave them that information because I wanted to make sure that they could take the steps necessary to protect themselves during the election and, and, and to make it themselves you know, much more resistant to this type of interference. I also made that public uh, that report public, Patty, because I, I published it on the public safety website. I tabled it in Parliament because I, I wanted Canadians to understand that this ris- risk existed. I also worked very closely. CSIS reported to me at the time, and I worked closely with CSIS that, that when they saw any evidence of, of potential interference, they had to go and sit down with, with all of the members of Parliament who could be impacted and warn them and, and give them information on how to keep themselves safe and to make sure that they weren't unduly influenced or, or that, uh, affected or uh, interfered with by I, not just the People's Republic of China, but other hostile state actors and other actors as well. And so we've been very public and upfront about this. But, but clearly, and, and the evidence is, is, is very strong, that the People's Republic of China has made an effort to interfere with our elections, and, and not just our elections, but other aspects of our society as well. And, and so becoming aware of that information, our government just this week has expelled a, a Chinese diplomat who was responsible for some of that activity. We'll continue to do the work keeping, keeping our elections safe. The committee work has been important, but really hasn't shed a whole lot of light. Some of the headline grabbers are about 100,000 feet above sea level, whether it be about the 11 candidates or Hang Dong or anybody else involved here. So would you be in support of a public inquiry? Because I think consensus across the country is, like even inside committee where some of your members, I think unnecessarily filibustered, try to run out the clock so that Katie Telford, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, wouldn't have to testify. She eventually did. We didn't learn very much beyond the fact that there have been, I believe it was six briefings, formal briefings of the Prime minister we really don't know what was entailed in those briefings so an inquiry unless it happens a public inquiry i think the confusion or the potential erosion of faith in our elections will continue to grow whether it be because of social media and or south of the border and cable news but i don't think there's any solution beyond that do you support a public inquiry well and, and patty I, I understand your point and, and and it's a good point and the public needs has a right to know certain things and and they certainly need to be reassured that that, that our the integrity of our, our public institutions and our elections is going to be protected and at the same time I also know because I've worked much of my life in, in in the area of national security and and criminal investigations I, I used to be the police chief in, in Toronto and 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 so I, I am also aware of that. You know, first of all, some of that intelligence is very sensitive. The way in which it's collected is very sensitive, and and so it isn't in the best interest of the country that 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 we bear all here to to the world and and show how we we gather intelligence and what we do with it. And so, you know, I think it's it's important that we take the steps necessary to make sure that our national security intelligence agencies have the tools, but also that, that we protect the way they do business so that they can do an important job for us. 
And unfortunately, and I've been through this before with a number of other previous public inquiries, it becomes very, very difficult. In, 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 in a full public inquiry, but with that information becomes public because it makes it more difficult for the people that protect us to do their jobs. But having said that, you know, we recognize that the public certainly has a strong appetite. They want to know what has happened here. They deserve to know what's happened here. That's why the prime minister has gone to a very respected individual, the former governor general, and asked him to look at that law, but also look at all the circumstances and find the best way to get that information out in the public while not undermining the ability of our national security intelligence agencies to do the important job that we asked them to do for us. And so, like, this this is, and it, you know, as a government, we also set up a, a committee of parliamentarians, National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, all parties, and we brought them in, swore them to secrecy, and shared all that information with them. And, and you know, that's one of the ways in which we've tried to respond to this. We know the public has a strong interest in what has taken place here. We want to make sure that the public gets the information they deserve and that they need. And at the same time, we want to make sure that, that our national security intelligence agencies and the police are able to do their jobs going forward because they've done an important job of protecting us against these threats that aren't going away. Yeah, nobody wants, nobody I think in this country wants to jeopardize ongoing intelligence gathering, our role with Five Eyes or anything like that. But the committee work has not really shone much a brighter light beyond some news reports that we have seen. So it, was your answer a no or a maybe? Well, the answer is, you know, and I've actually sat down and, 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 and had a conversation with a special rapporteur, Mr. Johnson. I know a number of officials that have experience in national security matters have as well. I, I, he's a very wise man, and, and he's, he's looking at he, – he, he will always act in the best interest of the country. And he's looking at, at the law. He's looking at, at the type of investigations that we do and the best way to get that information forward. And so I'm going to wait for his advice. Because we've asked him to take a good, hard look at it and do and give us advice on what's the right way to, to proceed with this. We know Canadians need information and they, they they want and deserve answers. We want to make sure they get them, but we also want to make sure we do it in a way which doesn't compromise the investigation. So, so I'm, going to, I'm going to wait on his advice. And the Prime Minister has made it really clear we're going to take his advice. And I believe it's two weeks from today we'll hear from uh, Mr. Johnston. Last one, and this again about faith in public institutions. Health Canada has a distinct role inside your portfolio of emergency preparedness, which includes the Public Health Agency of Canada. There was no pandemic handbook or textbook about how to proceed. There was a lot of unknowns. But to restore some faith in Health Canada and Public Health Agency Canada, do you think it's time for a post-mortem to see where mistakes were made, where some potential misinformation or confusing information was shared with Canadians? A lot of the mandates and restrictions were imposed by provinces, but there is going to be looming concern with how much faith people have in Health Canada. Do you think a fair start is a post-mortem and where mistakes were made to admit they were made? Because if we simply shield everybody from what went on and who possibly made some missteps along the way, then we're just going to have the same lingering confusion about whether or not to trust Health Canada. What do you think should happen? Well, and, and Patty, it's a really important question. The, the, the pandemic was hugely impactful on everybody. I was, like, from the very beginning, in my ministerial portfolio, was on the, the COVID committee, and I was in the room when we were making some of those really tough decisions in the earliest days of the pandemic. I'll tell you that our motivation and my motivation, right from the very first day and from the get-go, as was the Public Health Agency of Canada, was saving lives. It was it was all about doing everything that was necessary and required to keep people safe. You know, and and you know, we had never experienced anything on the scale of the COVID pandemic. The whole world was reeling from its impact. You know, we we we, we made decisions, and the decisions we made were to go fast. 
because that was the advice that we were getting from 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 the World Health Organization, from you know all the health organizations around the world, was 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 we were going to have to go quickly in order to protect people and to save lives, and when you're going that fast, inevitably you learn things along the way, and the science continued to evolve, and we and we, and we learned new things about the, the pandemic, we knew, learned new things about what worked and what didn't work. <laughs> and we continue to try to do everything possible. To sure. Were mistakes time. made, Minister Blair? Well, well, you know what? In hindsight, some of the things that I was responsible for, I, I, I was the minister responsible, for example, of closing our borders. And at the time, we were concerned that we hadn't gone fast enough to get composed. And, and closing the border isn't going to stop the pandemic, but it could slow it down. And so we, we took that action. And, 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 you know, some things I think we did really well. We kept, we kept the economy moving. We kept goods and services and essential workers moving back and forth across that border. But, you know, but as, as we closed that border, it had never been done before, particularly between ourselves and the United States. You know, we were trying to coordinate with what the Americans were doing, what we were doing on our side. And in hindsight, and my hindsight is crystal clear as anybody's, Patty, and, and, and I look back on it and I think, okay, I, I, we could have done this faster, we could have done this better. It's really important to learn the lessons of, of these experiences because I, my, one of my jobs now is to make sure that we're prepared for the next time. And unfortunately, there very well could be a next time. And we have to make sure that we've learned all of the lessons from our experiences, that we, the, we do the things that actually work to save people's lives, and we do them quick and we do them well. I mean, at the same time, you know, we've already begun to apply a lot of those lessons. For example, the National Emergency Strategic Stockpile of, of personal protection equipment, vaccines, um, other respiratory illness type of equipment, all of that's now been, been you know, well collected. And the Public Health Agency of Canada has a, a large supply of this material that's, that's stockpiled across the country so that we'll be better prepared and be able to respond. You'll remember how, how the scramble that was on to try to get masks and gloves and, and personal protection equipment for people. And, and, and mm -hmm. we've, 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 we've solved that little. And, and we, you know, I think we're a much stronger place going forward. But there, but there are ongoing reviews. Now, you know, I do one within emergency preparedness. The public agent, health agency is doing their review. Um, but as the government collectively is, is, is looking very hard at all of our experiences being led by the Minister of Health on, on everything that we learned from, from, from COVID, the COVID pandemic, all the things we need to do better and smarter the next time. And, and we'll apply those lessons, you know, because it's, it's our responsibility to Canadians. And, and, and listen, let me acknowledge this pandemic was really impactful, and, and the restrictions that were put on place, the kids missing school, people not being able to work, we went really fast because on the first day, 9 million people suddenly couldn't go to work. And, and so we worked really fast to make sure that there'd be food on the table and, 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 and a roof over their heads. You know, and, and on reflection, some of the, the necessity to go fast made that meant that mistakes could be made, and, and I think it's important to acknowledge that, but yeah. I think to balance that against the need to go faster in order to protect people and to be there for them when they really needed us. Including with CERB and the emergency wage subsidy. Very last one. At the policy convention that just happened, there was a policy adopted that said that a re-elected Liberal government, even though I know policy convention adoption doesn't mean it'll actually happen, but a billion-dollar COVID-19 proof of vaccination fund to support provinces and territories to implement the requirement for proof of vaccine credentials in their jurisdiction for non-essential business and public spaces. First, the vaccine did not work as advertised. So is there actually any appetite at the ministerial level, the cabinet level, to put any proof of vaccination back in place and or even to support provinces who choose to do so? Because, number one, it didn't work as we were told it would. And the definition of the of fully vaccinated hasn't budged either, even though some people have had as many as five or potentially six shots, primary series plus one. So does the government actually consider this to be a wise move, considering the, the science of the vaccine and the societal 
societal divisiveness that came because of mandates and restrictions? Well, first of all, Patty, let, let, let me, I'm going to disagree with you so, because, because I think the, the vaccines saved lives. The vaccines had a direct impact on, on health outcomes for an awful lot of Canadians. And I, I sincerely believe that. That may be lives. the case, sir, but it didn't work as advertised, was what I said. I've had my full course above them, and everybody in my family has as well, because I believe that that, that is, was an important step forward in, in protecting us. No, it, it, it wasn't an absolute guarantee that you'd never get the thing, but it, but it was a, a, you know, a strong support for, for not ending up in hospital or, 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 or a terrible, tragic outcome as a result of getting the disease. And, and, and we saw the results in Canada, by the way. You compare it to, to other countries. Compare ourselves just to our, our good friends and neighbours to the south. Our, our results, because Canadians did go get those vaccines and Canadians did follow public health advice, and, and although it, we, a lot of people lost their lives during the pandemic, you know, if our, our, our tragic outcomes were far lower than, than just many other like countries that did not follow those, those same paths. And, and so that's, that's one thing. And, and with respect to, to the policy convention, there's, an, uh, there's a world of difference, Patty, and I know you know this. There's a world of difference between somebody putting an idea forward at a policy convention for discussion and, and, and government policy. Government policy is informed by science and expertise and, and, and the best advice we can get from, from our health uh, professionals. Like that's the basic basis upon which governments make the decision. And we, we have a responsibility to do what is necessary to keep people safe, and we do it with the best advice that's available to us at the time. That's a terribly different thing than people just you know having have a, a, an idea that they floated a policy convention. And those policy conventions, is, is, it's great. People come from all over the country. You know, they've, they've all got you know, different experiences and different perspectives from around the, uh, across the country. It's a really great opportunity for people to come in and discuss you know, different ideas and and, and and debate some some things, but but government policy is 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 by by necessity a far more responsible bit of business. And, and so and I can tell you because I I sit at that table, Patty, we bring in the best scientific advice that we can possibly get um, to, to the chief medical officer and and our science officer, and we listen to that advice and we do what is necessary to keep Canadians safe. I appreciate your time, Minister. I, I I know that you're also the president of the King's Privy Council, so talking about exercise of the royal prerogative is something I wanted to get to, but I don't have time, but I appreciate yours this morning. Of course, Patty. Thanks very much for having me on. Have Pleasure. Take care. It's Bill Blair, Minister of Mercy Preparedness. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Went a little over time, of course, with Minister Blair, but so much to get to when you have an opportunity to speak with a federal minister in particular. And yes, I did want to get to the issue regarding the fact that Mr. Minister Blair is indeed the uh, president of the King's Privy Council because I think there's still big questions about the future of the monarchy, not only in the UK, but here, and the role that it could or should play. The federal government did tell us over the weekend that King Charles will be on the $20 bill and on some coins. So any of those questions that you were hoping we'd get to, I was hoping as well. But, you know, between Integrity of Elections, uh, Health Canada, the Public Health Agency of Canada, and cyber preparedness, I think just kind of got ahead on the hierarchy chart. Okay, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, uh, Wanda's in the queue to talk about an issue out in the town of Bonavista. We'll find out what right after this. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Wanda, you're on the air. Good morning. How are you? Very well, thanks. How about you? Uh, good. Good. <laughs> uh, okay, so I'm calling in to discuss a house fire that I had on March 14th in Bonavista. Oh, no. Yeah, uh, where uh, me and my children became homeless, my two kids. Uh, we lost everything in our house fire. It was electrical fire. 
And since then, I've been having a lot of trouble to get things situated with the town. Not with my insurance. My insurance, i gone through fine. I have a rebuild policy, which means I have to build on the land that I'm on. Uh, the town had told me, had, had, when, when my contractor went to get a permit to build me another home, he got turned down because he was told that I was, the house was historical. I bought this house not knowing it was historical. Uh, the owner, the previous owner, didn't know it was historical, so therefore I did not have insurance that consists of anything to do with an historical home. Now, I was thinking that the exchange of land from me to the previous owner, when we went to the town office, I'm thinking I should have been informed. I should have had the opportunity to buy an historical home or not. Well, it's an odd thing to have been left out of a real estate transaction. You would think whether it be the realtors or lawyers involved or the town itself would have made you aware of something as important as that because... It has implications with how you renovate, it has implications how you rebuild, has implications yeah. with insurance, so it's a funny thing to leave out. I know, but they have a new, they, the, the town has a new plan, and apparently this started in 1999. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking at least 80% of Mount Weston knows nothing about this. Nothing. Pro- probably not. No, 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 we're all in zones. Apparently I am in a mixed-use zone, not a mixed-use historical zone. Uh, I had a meeting yesterday after a long battle on which to try to get a meeting, a town meeting, uh, and now they're telling me that I have to, they're going to get somebody from the historic society to come and look at the home, to go inside the home, and see if it's um, repairable or not. If it's repairable, they want it to be repaired, and because I'm not allowed to demolish the home, to build a new one on the land, uh, that has to be um, repaired. And me and my kids have to go back and live in that. <laughs> yeah. So how badly damaged is the home? What's the extent uh, of the well, fire damage? Uh, the extent of the damage is, well, uh, when you go into my porch, my whole porch is gone. Laundry room is gone. Bathroom is gone. Portion of my kitchen. Uh, I have, a, Of course, I'm in a two-story house, and I knew this was an older home when I bought it. I knew that. I didn't know it was deemed historical. Um, and then the fire went up, of course, up sidewalk to where my kids' bedrooms are too. So there's a bit of damage down there. There's extent amount of water and smoke damage that right through the house. The ceilings are hanging down. The steps are very hard to try to walk up on now to get up there. And to me, it's just not. And well, to me, I paid insurance for a reason. If you pay insurance, you need to get something in return if something happens. And this was a tragedy that happened to me and my kids. And I think that I should not have to go back into a home that has smoke damage in it. There's always going to be smoke there. The chemicals that the um, farmer had to use to get that out, apparently they had to shower like five or six times to get this off their body. Now I have two kids and myself, and we got to go into that. That's always going to be there. When are you anticipating someone from the Historical Society to be able to get out there and help you figure out what the implications are? Well, we had a meeting yesterday, so in hopes that... um, Somebody will be coming out soon, and I, me myself, I don't. I, I told them that I need to know who's coming because I think that there's a conflict of interest on the go. Because our mayor also has a business interest here in restoring uh, properties, uh, which I got a call from his employee, one of his employees, um, the same day that I had a call from my contractor saying that we were uh, turned down for a permit. Then I got a call from. The town office, um, 
I, uh, let me see who she is. Now I got this written down on paper. She's the economic, culture, and heritage officer. She called me and, uh, and tell me they were trying to come up with another alternative for me. So they would offer me a piece of land that the town owns to rebuild on because I couldn't build there. Now, I have a rebuild policy, which means I'm going to take a big loss from my insurance by taking the settlement, which don't give me enough money to build a house for me and my kids. So obviously, I can't take that. I need to build on the land that I'm on. Uh, five minutes after I get the car from her, I get the car from from uh, the mayor's employee uh, informing me that she's reaching out in behalf of her boss okay. um, to offer me another alternative uh, in exchange for a dollar for my piece of land. And I, so I asked her, like, so where is this land to, like, you're offering? Because, I mean, I'm devastated, by the way. I just saw three phone calls and all within, like, a half an hour, not knowing. is uh, a lot of unknown for me. Uh, I said, so where's the land to? And she said, well, you would have to go to the town office to find that out because I don't know where it's to. So you tell me that's not conflict? Yeah, it is. Yeah, well, we can follow up with the mayor, uh, but I'd be curious to hear from the Historical Society as well. I guess that'll come through you because they probably won't speak to a very specific issue that you're dealing with now, whether it be with the town or your insurance company or anybody yeah. else. So I'd appreciate an update when you have one on that front. Also, I'll give you one. I'm hoping to have somebody from Historica to go uh, into my house with me this week. And I also uh, recommend that. I don't know if they can do this or not, but somebody from health and safety, too, as well, because of the chemicals that was used from the firefighters. Okay. When you have updates available, get back to us, Wanda. I, I certainly will. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate yours. Good luck. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, so let's keep going. Uh, line number six. Say good morning to the independent member elected in Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? That's kind. How are you doing? I'm not doing too bad. Patty, before I get to my topic, uh, first of all, I just want to certainly pass along my condolences to the family uh, of uh, the late Gus, Gus Etchigiri. And uh, Gus, certainly, uh, I can't say I knew him really well, but we did have a number of conversations over the years. And uh, certainly was uh, he would contact me from time to time, issues around the fishery and so on. And I have to say that uh, I have great respect for the man and uh, certainly his advocacy and passion for the Newfoundland fishery. And he's made a great contribution to the province, and I'm sure he'll be dearly missed by all who knew him. Well, of course, I not only spoke with Gus uh, a significant number of times, but uh, the information he sent me via email sometimes was overwhelming because he had so much, not only at the True. tip of his tongue, but at his fingertips, yep. that it was, uh, he kept it coming fast and furious. I tried to read every single thing in preparation for our next telephone call, which sadly won't happen again, but yep, sad loss. Yeah, for sure. He was certainly a wealth of knowledge. Um, Patty, uh, I just wanted to talk about uh, the story, and I know you mentioned during your preamble, I, I heard you there. Uh, story in the VOCM News this morning about the uh, review that's being done of the Independent Appointments Commission, and uh, they're looking for some public uh, input into uh, potential uh, changes to, to the legislation if, if deemed necessary by the uh, by the uh, individual who's doing the report. I can't think of his name off the top of my head now, but. Um, David Conway, I think. There you go. There you go. But anyway, uh, I just wanted, I guess, to sort of echo uh, the concern that uh, that you raised. It's something that uh, at the time when uh, this was the signature bill for the Ball administration was Bill 1. And um, in principle, 
uh, one would say uh, it, it, it's a good bill uh, because we know that for years and years, you know, we've heard talks about, uh, you know, nepotism, cronyism, and so on uh, when it comes to uh, key government appointments and, and uh, you know, parties coming in and looking after their own supporters and uh, booting out the, uh, the booting people off boards who might have been put by a past administration and then putting their own people in there and so on. And that's something that I think that the general public, um, you know, certainly over time, um, has, um, you know, doesn't put a good taste in a lot of people's mouths. And I think most people want to see things done fairly and squarely, um, a merit-based system. So that's what this whole idea of the Independent Appointments Commission and this bill was supposed to be about, was to put in a uh, independent process for appointing people to... Uh, uh, t you know, for not all positions in government, but certainly the, t the 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 higher positions within agencies, boards, commissions, and so on. And uh, in principle, that all sounds like a wonderful thing, and I don't have a problem with the process um, uh, or part of the process. Certainly, people would apply to the um, Public Service Commission. Um, they would sort of weed out the applications, and they would bring a number of them forward to the Independent Appointments Commission. Once it goes there, you have these independent uh, group of individuals, highly uh, qualified individuals, I would suggest, uh, who would go through the applications, and they would uh, do interviews and so on, and they would come up with a list of three names to present to the minister uh, uh, of the department for which you know the position would report. Um, and they don't have to come up with three. They're supposed to try to come up with three, but if, I guess, through going off through all the applications, and interviews, they found, well, you know, there's only two people here who we feel really meet the criteria. Well, it could be two, but uh, but ideally three names, and it goes then to the to the minister. The problem we have, uh, or at least the problem I have, and I, I think a lot of people would share that concern, is that there is a section in the Act, Section 23, actually, um, and uh, it basically it says that um, that there is a requirement uh, to consider a recommendation um, but shall in no way affect, alter, or fetter the discretion of the lieutenant governor and council, which is cabinet, or the minister to exercise an authority to appoint a person under the applicable act or another authority. So in other words, um, we have this clause here that basically says after the three names go to the minister, he or she is not obligated to select one of those three names. He or she can just take those three names, put them in the shredder if, if they wanted to, and simply appoint somebody else who wasn't even on the recommendation list, someone else who never even applied for the position. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that watering down that process, uh, I think, you know, uh, I think it's wrong. And if we want to have a truly independent process, then I think there ought to be one of two things. Uh, a, ideally, I think the minister should be obligated to appoint uh, one of the three on the list. If there is some uh, extraordinary circumstance, and I really can't think off the top of my head what that extraordinary circumstance would be, but if there was something that none of us can comprehend why one of those names uh, doesn't suit uh, the position, at the very least, the minister should have to, in my opinion, report to the House of Assembly that the individual appointed did not go through the process. 
Yeah, why not? And at least we have openness and transparency in that. Re- and then they can defend uh, why they didn't select someone who went through the independent process. Yeah, it always felt like there was a bit of uh, protection afforded to government here. But if they could pick whoever they want, then it doesn't have a whole lot of teeth to it. Correct. And, you know, unfortunately, we also have arrived very clearly at a point where if someone gets appointed and has any relationship whatsoever with the governing party or a member of the governing party or has ever crossed paths with the premier, then all of a sudden it's a disingenuous appointment and it should be vacated. When, in fact, you may indeed have some relationship with the party and be absolutely the best person for the job, but we can't handle that anymore, so we had to go down this path. And they did purposefully give themselves a really significant loophole that they could utilize without any discretion from any outside entity and pick whoever they want. So, uh, I mean, I've long said that about that, Bill. You know, it's a feel-good, but it's not a real good. Correct, correct. And, and of course, you know, uh, Patty, when it comes with government, and uh, a lot of people don't have a whole lot of faith or trust in government or government institutions, and, uh, you know, uh, in politics and so on, um, perception is reality. So not only must it be done properly and fair and square and independently, it must be perceived as uh, just as important. I would, I would argue just as importantly, if not more importantly, uh, it must be perceived as being done above board. And this loophole um, um, that we currently have in the legislation certainly puts, uh, you know, put forward a situation where a lot of people would question whether or not these uh, appointments were truly done based on merit, and particularly, as you say, when it is somebody who may have been associated some, somewhere along the way to the sitting government. And I agree with you that, you know, uh, we, we live in a very small province, and uh, so people's you know, paths are going to cross all the time. So, you know, I'm not taken aback by the fact, uh, you know, if somebody, you know, went through an independent process and we knew it was truly independent, that loophole was closed, I couldn't care less if the person appointed to a position as the Premier's uh, brother, you know what I mean? As long as I know it went through a process and that person is the best, most qualified person for the job, bring it on as far as I'm concerned. But I just want assurances that it's done above board. And right now, the way the process is set up, that loophole exists where perhaps, you know, it may not necessarily be done above board. So that's the gap they need to close. I've already spoken to the... uh, to the gentleman who's uh, doing the uh, who's who's doing the uh, report, and I've given them my two cents worth. So as we go out for public consultations, if people share that same concern that I do, uh, then I would certainly encourage them to uh, let it be known, and uh, as part of the public consultations, and hopefully we can get this uh, you know glaring loophole closed, and then we can have a system that we can all feel confident in. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. All the very best. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. So, Paul Lane, independent member, Mount Pearl Southlands. Time for a break. When we come back, let's talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. I want to start with uh, something I mentioned a little while ago, which is uh, people bringing reusable coffee cups to uh, to get their, their joe in the morning or their tea. I'm not a big uh, visitor to uh, facilities, but I was invited out the other day, and I brought mine. And uh, here's the results: you get about 14% more coffee if you use it. Uh, Tim Hortons, Starbucks, Jumping Bean, all will do it. McDonald's doesn't do it. Um, you uh, you save 10 cents. They take 10 cents off. They do it as a refill. It keeps it warmer due to the fact it's insulated. Um, 
you won't spill it. Ironically, when I was there, one of the people I was I was having coffee with actually spilled the coffee on himself. And I know a lot of people have issues like that. So it's less less mess, obviously, safer. Um, it reduces, obviously, waste. So in Canada, 1.6 billion coffee cups go to landfills. If you prorate that to Newfoundland, it may even be higher, but the data is not broken down by province. That, that would be 23 million coffee cups that end up in landfills. And uh, obviously not only landfills, unfortunately, if you look at the side of the roads. So, you know, I just want to, you know, lend that it's not a big deal. You just got to make sure that it's clean and it has a lid on it when you pass it in. So uh, call on people to try and add that to their day. Fair enough. I um, want to jump over to the wildfires uh, in Alberta and uh, – and, you know, our hearts go out to Albertans once again and part of BC that are experiencing these, as Premier Daniel Smith says, unprecedented. And it just seems like when it comes to the climate, everything is unprecedented now. Temperatures as high as 30 degrees and in some areas of Alberta, 11% higher temperatures on May 1st than it was ever recorded since they started keeping track of stuff. Yeah, I mean, the wildfires in Alberta, of course, I spent the bulk of the 90s there. One of the communities that has been evacuated in full, Edson, is about 30 or 40 kilometers away from where my children were born. So I know people there, and it is wicked. I've seen some of the videos and heard plenty of stories and touched base with my pals in the area, and it's extraordinary. You know, And on that front, you know, we've had a couple of pretty significant fire seasons here. Central, of course, was a big problem last year. And now the province is still dilly-dallying about what they're going to do with our absent of fifth water bomber. I just wanted to put that in there because I think that's a story that might get a little more traction this summer. Yeah, well, you know, but again, it's 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 that boiling frog analogy where, you know, it, everybody is slowly boiling, burning. You know, there's a million people who are breathing smoky air now and, Western Canada, you know, our brothers and sisters in this country, and, you know, we all have a responsibility to reduce how much carbon we're putting in the atmosphere. And, you know, and it's amazing that in that province you will not see any commentary that draws a straight line between what's happening now. But, but you know, Danielle Smith say they have $1.5 billion in a contingency fund that ironically came from the sale and production of fossil fuels. But anyway, Joe, I want to keep throwing that out there. You know, it's, I mean, I know it's difficult. I know nobody wants to change our lifestyles, but you know what? It's coming, it's happening, and I don't know how bad it's got to get before people well, start doing more dramatic things. Well, regarding fossil fuels, uh, production is up in Alberta and Saskatchewan, 10% reduction in production here in this province, I guess directly associated with uh, Terra Nova. But anyway, there we go. So I, I want to read out, I want to go a little bit more, uh, little bit more uh, I guess, philosophical, but I want to read out a quote from... Uh, from Irish playwright, critic, and political activist George Bernard Shaw, and I, and I, I think it, I think it's it's. I mean, that was he wrote this in 1903. It's actually two paragraphs from two separate things, but a lot of times people put them together uh, because taken in its in its whole. I feel like as I look around and I and I see as our institutions crumble, and a lot of it has to do, I believe, with um, the fact that work ethic or uh, desire to serve or you know, maximizing quality of life, however you want to define that, is leading us down this path. So, so I just want, you know, people to have a listen to this. And, and these aren't my words, and, you know, please don't take offense to this, but I just think we need to think about it. This is true. This is the true joy in life, being used for, being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one, being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances, complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. I'm of the opinion, this is him, not me, that my life belongs to the whole community, 
And as long as I live it, it is my privilege to do for it what I can. So do for the community what you can. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die. For the harder I work, the more I live. I rejoice in life for its own sake. Life is no brief candle to me. It is a sort of splendid torch, which I've got a hold of for the moment, and I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to future generations. So, you know, as I read that, I think of the late Mr. Echigiri, and uh, I feel like the uh, torch he's handed to us, when I hear people like Ryan Cleary and Merv Wiseman on, I feel like they're taking that torch. And, you know, I think that we all have to figure how we can lean in and and try and find our place and try and serve and, and try and save this beautiful province and, and each other in the process. I appreciate the time this morning, Tom. Thank you for this. Okay. Take care, everyone. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right. Uh, interesting news in the province's burgeoning tech sector. Yesterday, MISA, of course, I- involved with trying to help you control your energy bills in your home with their smart thermostats. They've made a, an acquisition, their first ever, Zen Ecosystems. Their intellectual property has been purchased by MISA. They're in the operations of small and medium-sized business as opposed to simply the home thermostats that MISA have created and doing very well, raised a lot of money in the recent past. We'll talk about this acquisition and the future for MISA with Brad Purdy, Communications Director, right after this. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, back in 2016, uh, Josh and Zach Green had the idea to make your home more energy efficient with their smart thermostats. They've grown leaps and bounds. They've had a couple of really impressive funding rounds, $6.2 million for expansion. A $20 million cash injection has allowed the company to expand. Join us on line number three is the communications director with MISA. That's Brad Purdy. Good morning, Brad. You're on the air. Oh, hi. How are you doing, Patty? Couldn't be better. How about you? I'm not too bad. It's, it's really exciting to be able to talk to the local audience about this acquisition. Um, just in general, like this is something that came across our plate, and we couldn't really pass up the opportunity. So, well, let's be, just before we get to because I know what Misa does. Many people listening probably do as well. But let's just start from scratch here. What exactly does the company do, and what do you produce? So Misa uh, makes smart thermostats, internet-connected thermostats for baseboard heating and mini-split heat pumps currently. Um, we've been on the go since about 2016, like you said. Uh, we've gone through four different products right now. That's currently what our lineup is. We sell in places like Best Buy, Costco. We've, we've seen a ton of success. Uh, and we also work with some utilities and some larger-scale grid management programs, but this is definitely a step in a different direction. And not to get too technical, but how does the smart thermostat work to help me be more energy efficient and consequently save me money? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, basically, with the uh, it's a really high-quality thermostat to begin with, so it has high accuracy and everything like that. But with smart technology like scheduling and geofencing, which means you can – be in your car coming home and it'll turn on your heat or turn off your heat on the way out. Uh, all of those type features really add up. Uh, and we noticed that the average customer saves about 26% on their bill. Is that an annual savings? Uh, it's during the winter. And uh, you'll. we also noticed that you'll notice, uh, save it on some of the cooling and stuff in the summer as well. Does it matter how I, oh, pardon me. Does it matter how I heat my home for the ability to uh, incorporate MISA? Sorry, that, so, uh, like, if I rely fully on oil-fired heat, for instance, does it matter how I heat my home to whether or not MISA will work for me? 
Yeah, so uh, with MISO, we support uh, right now it's high-voltage heat, so okay. it's your baseboards and your in-wall heaters, uh, electric in-floor and your mini-split heat pumps as well. Anything that's using electricity besides your central HVAC, which is actually one of the reasons that this acquisition uh, of assets is so important to us because it brings us into those central HVAC-type situations as well. Tell us about Zen Ecosystems, the California-based company which was just purchased by your outfit. Yeah, we we require we acquire the assets um, of uh, of Zen, and that's for their low voltage thermostat line and for their energy management platform called Zen HQ. What kind of penetration do they have in the marketplace? So Zen uh, did really well in the the commercial space when it comes to you know the the companies that might have. Uh, two or three or four different locations and they want to have a central place in order to control them. Um, and that's that's basically what the dashboard does. And uh, that was their main focus. Now, the pandemic hit and they had a lot of contracts with telecoms and stuff like that. And unfortunately, um, that was one of, like many companies, that was one of the, the reasons that, you know, the assets finally went up for sale. So we had the opportunity, and we, we jumped on that, and we think it's it's the perfect fit for the future of MISA. So how many people work for MISA at this point? Uh, we have about 120 of us. So 120, so a growing operation. When you buy something like Zen, which is a little bit outside your Ballywick, into the small, medium-sized business spaces, talk about the targeted approach, whether it be with starting here at home and using their platform and their proprietary information to help businesses here in this province, because as we all know, there is a possible risk with getting too big too fast if you're not focusing on strategy. So what's the strategy to incorporate Zen into your operations? Well, yeah, that's a really good point. And for this year, we are definitely focused on our core business of the high-voltage thermostat. That's been growing year over year, and we've been doing really well with that. Um, right now, our biggest focus is the Zen HQ product that we have. That's basically out of the box. We can do it, and it's focused on the low voltage, like I said, for central heating and the HVAC thing. So uh, our current goal this year is to grow that locally, um, to find some local clients who are interested in large-scale energy management, medium-scale. I should say, um, you know, maybe a uh, a property manager or or something along those lines. We we have a bunch of uh, interest already, and that's kind of the approach we're taking this year. And obviously, we did uh, acquire a line of low voltage thermostats, so that will be in our future as well. But this year is definitely heavily leaning towards NHQ program. So what does it mean for scalability, not only for the company as a whole and the profitability-related matters, but inside MISA, I think, if I remember correctly, it can handle homes, depending on how many zones you have for heat, maybe eight or ten thermostats. What does the yeah. Zen platform allow? Because some even so-called medium-sized business can have dozens, if not hundreds, of thermostats. Uh, yeah, no, that's exactly what the point is, is that um, this allows us to... Uh, control all of those thermostats and eventually move the MISA electric, uh, all the high voltage thermostats into the program as well. Right now, we're basically just rolling out what Zen currently had, which is the, the low voltage, the, the furnaces, central heat, those type things. So we'll be continuing on with that platform as it is. Uh, we'll be taking up their clients and supporting all of those. Um, but eventually, we kind of want to misify it and uh, and put our own existing products in there and uh, continue growth in that regard. What does growth look like over the next 12, 36 months? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, just in general, we, we have a lot of different um, uh, things on our plate. We have uh, some developments that we'll be announcing soon. 
Uh, we were also working on a larger scale with big utilities in, in BC and on the uh, in Pacific Northwest. So from the company standpoint, we, we were growing anyway, and this in particular is going to be massive for us. Um, we're, we're basically getting our feet wet with it this year. Uh, we're hoping to roll it out in a much larger scale within the next couple of years. Uh, thanks for making time for the program this morning, and congratulations. Please pass along our congratulations to the entire 120-strong MISA team. Indeed. I just wanted to make one note, Patty, and that is uh, you can definitely get in touch with us if you're a small, medium business with multiple locations. Uh, We we definitely want to hear from you and see if we can fit your energy needs as well. Appreciate this, Brad. Good luck. Cool. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Brad Pretty. He's Communications Director with MISA. That's a big deal. And, you know, sometimes I get into the groove of talking tech. Not that I'm very technically savvy, because I'm absolutely not. But the opportunities here in this province, because momentum is really on our side here in that sector. So at this point, they're talking about, you know, it's about a billion-dollar industry at this moment in time, just here inside our provincial boundaries. And that has opportunity to grow exponentially. You know, we've got to make sure all hands in the post-secondary world and what government policy is in line with that, because you don't have to be in Singapore or Silicon Valley or New York City to be a big player in the tech sector. Look no further than Verifin. So Mesa, just another example of growth coming and hopefully more news like that in the future. Let's go to line number one. Get some reaction to a caller, Wanda, earlier. Had some fire damage at her home. Found out after the fact that it was a historical property, which has some insurance implications and dealing with the town. Bonavista Mayor John Norman joins us on line number one. Mayor Norman, you're on the air. Hello. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Uh, yeah, so I overheard the uh, call this morning, and uh, I thought it was, I guess, important for uh, someone from the municipal office to respond. As you can appreciate, there's always multiple sides to every story, and though we've been trying to keep it out of the uh, media and more the public light uh, with the advice of our municipal lawyer, I guess it was brought on your show this morning. It was. You know, one part of the story that jumped out at me, and I don't know all of the different moving parts, but inside a real estate transaction, whether it be with the realtors, the lawyers, maybe the town, for someone to buy a property to not know it has an historic designation of one type or another, seems to be a pretty important point left out of a pretty massive, uh, one of the largest purchases any of us will make in our life is buying a home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so with most municipalities, and I can only officially speak for Bonavista, you would be notified if you were buying a property that had provincial or national heritage status, or if it has heritage status municipally and has received a municipal grant. Now, this particular house hasn't received any grants, uh, but it is on the municipal heritage inventory. Now, to put that in perspective, in Bonavista, uh, there's about a 1,000 buildings on our inventory. So like any municipality, uh, from St. John's down, uh, is every property owner contacted that has different designations or has different rules and regulations surrounding their zones? No. Municipalities, under the Municipalities Act and the Department of Municipal Affairs, engages with the public or attempts to. And uh, from 2013-2014, when the newest town plan uh, was under development and being released, there were a lot of public engagements. Way back when I was a councillor, I was involved with it. And then in the first three years of the new town plan, I uh, actually wasn't on council during that time, but the engagement continued. And there were public meetings. There were uh, venue events called. I remember one I went to at the Garrick Theatre. It seats 200 people. 11 people came out. 
So there is a certain responsibility, and to some this may sound harsh or cold, but it's simply reality, and our lawyer municipal affairs backs us up on this. There is the responsibility for an owner to investigate further the property in which they're buying, just the same as if you're planning a renovation. We have, like many municipalities, engage with property owners that may go ahead and start a renovation and then get a little bit hot under the collar when they find out they need a permit for this or a permit for that or this particular type of renovation is not allowed because of such and such. Usually people are only upset and bothered by this when it affects them directly. When it actually means coming out to public events and getting engaged civically with uh, town planning and municipal bylaw review, you know, 95% of us uh, aren't interested in that. And so there was also an implication that there's a conflict of interest here because the assertion Wanda made, and I don't know what kind of businesses you're involved in, we have talked about the fact that you own some Airbnbs, short-term rentals or what have you, but mm-hmm. she, I, I think she suggested that you have a business that does renovations specifically to historical or heritage properties. What's the story? Yes, I am tied uh, personally to a company that does heritage restoration. And this comes off from time to time based on what happens in Bonavista when it comes to heritage. I don't actually sit on the Heritage uh, Committee, the Bonavista Historic Townscape Foundation Board. I left that organization three years ago because of any potential conflict. And I try to stay out of individual issues. When it comes to this particular file, we're dealing with it only as a municipality. Uh, with this particular house fire event, just like someone last year who had a flood or a few years ago had wind damage and decided to sell their house, uh, one of my staff will often call someone if it's in a heritage area or it's a heritage house that we think we would like to try to save, uh, would reach out. The homeowner, as in this case, as in many other cases, says, no, no, I'm not interested in selling. And that's the end of it. Uh, There really isn't anything there. We've discussed this with our uh, lawyer multiple times, including in this case. We've also discussed it in detail with municipal affairs, and I'm quite confident in saying there is no conflict of interest. And I'm kind of uh, frustrated that it keeps coming up, actually, because it it is bordering on, on something else when it keeps getting repeated when the law has said there isn't anything there. It has been raised at the council table multiple times, and it's been voted down unanimously each time if there is any conflict on a particular issue. And it's up to a councillor or a mayor to raise the idea that there could be conflict. I've done that on many occasions. Council and our legal council says there isn't. We move forward. Uh, th- thank you for that, Mayor. Now, last one. I sometimes, you know, i got a lot rattling around my poor old head here, get a little bit confused on where we are in the status of one issue or another. This one is about the doctors, about it. That's done deal now, is it? <laughs> it's an ongoing issue, uh, Patty. Between the fishery issues, the doctor issues, the house fire issue, we're very busy at the town hall these days. With the physicians, we ha- do have some negotiations ongoing. We do have some contracts signed off on. I think what uh, myself, the premier, the health minister, and others are all discussing now is how we ensure not only to get more contracts signed, but how to make sure these physicians that are coming in, and nurse practitioners, hopefully, signing these six-month, 12-month, two-year contracts 
how do we retain them and how do we make sure that we are the most welcoming and approachable community we can possibly be we have to put our best face forward our uh, our best foot forward and we are now planning this summer a big welcoming event inviting current healthcare staff management nurses and so on in Bonavista some of the existing positions we've had here for years and mixing in some of the new positions, bringing out some people from the health department and talking about ways forward uh, in a nice, you know, semi-formal reception. I think this is uh, where we are right now. Everything we've requested from the government with uh, regard to flexible schedules, compensation, it's all been done. So right now it's down to simply recruitment and much of it is in the hands of the doctors and nurse practitioners themselves. Do they want to accept these contracts or not? Uh, they're very attractive. So now is the town's point in time to, as I said, showcase itself and really get on the train of attracting these individuals to the community. So the process has begun, but there's still a number of vacancies that we have to fill. And I don't doubt that that's going to take many months, maybe even into next year, before all of those positions are filled. We're talking about nine vacancies right now. I appreciate the update this morning, Mayor Norman. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. That's John Norman. He's the mayor of the town of Bonavista. Okay, with the ongoing uh, snow crab standoff, many people, in particular plant workers, have been kind of left in limbo and in the crossfire, including some 20 Filipino newcomers who were brought to the province to work in a fish processing plant or crab processing plant out in Hickman's Harbour. They were brought here by Work Global Canada, and their vice president is Wanda Young. She joins us after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. As advertised, join us on line number five is the vice president of Work Global Canada. That's Wanda Cuff-Young. Good morning, Wanda. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? Excellent. Before we get into the issue regarding the uh, 20 Filipinos that are here waiting to see what goes on in the snow crab fishery, Work Global Canada is a standalone business or it's an arm's length operation with uh, some level of government? Who are you? So Work Global Canada was established um, in 2012. And we work in recruitment and immigration. We help bring people uh, primarily to Newfoundland and Labrador, but also to other provinces in Canada, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, uh, the next in line. But we help bring people here primarily to be permanent residents, to work in various occupations, whether it be in the food industry, healthcare. Um, this is this is what we do to help you know fill labor shortages. We always aim to find jobs for Canadians and Newfoundland Labradorians first if they're available to, to work in any of the positions. But really, we're here to help fill, you know, with our aging population, the demands that our province is facing in some of these markets. So we have offices internationally in you know, international countries, and we're licensed to provide immigration service. We work very closely with the federal government, as well as with provincial offices of immigration, like the Office of Immigration in Newfoundland and Labrador. With filling jobs, like, for instance, at the uh, crab processing plant in Hickman's Harbour, is this a contractual relationship you have with the owner-operator of that facility? Yeah, so, in, like, we do work in, you know, primarily our business is to bring people here on permanent basis. However, you know, seasonal employers, like employers in the fishery and sometimes in agriculture, they don't have full-time employment. So they go under a federal application process, as do many um, fish-related businesses in Atlantic Canada and in Newfoundland and Labrador. There are many in the province that avail of this program to provide a temporary workforce. You know, they have to go to a very stringent process of uh, validating the need for these workers. 
in order to get approval from the federal government. And these candidates arrive on work permits to work. That's what they're here for. However, you know, nobody anticipated this, you know, uh, fish dispute to continue and be uh, prevalent to, you know, stop them from working as our other local people not able to work as well. There's thousands in the province sitting waiting to go back to work. How does this stand off? Uh, what's the implications regarding their work visa? Because like you say, when you have a work visa or a work permit, it's for exactly that work. Right. But, you know, when you work in the fishery, you know, um, there are weather issues and there's often weeks in the summer or in a period when there is no fish. So there's stipulations built in for minimum requirements for pay to protect candidates. So, you know, we're very, you know, we're very a responsible employer. These candidates, when we arrived, we had a welcome event at our office. I've been to Hickman's Harbor. I took three of my staff there to check on them. We're in constant contact with them, you know, to ensure they're, you know, they're well taken care of. And I know the accommodations are first class. They have internet. They're, you know, they're, you know, they have food. Everything is good. You know, they're not, but they want to work, as do everybody. Nobody anticipated, as I said, this ongoing, you know, issue to continue. So, you know, every day we're hopeful that a resolution will be put forward for their sake and for the hundreds of others that are sitting in rural Newfoundland and similar uh, plants that have them and other Newfoundland and Labrador people that want to get back to work. And, of course, you know, it's a whole around issue. Many people are affected. I would imagine there's a need for a plan B here because there's the possibility that this particular fishery will not get executed this year. So what happens if and when that comes to pass and whatever backup plan or plan B that's a place for these particular 20 Filipinos? Yeah, so in, in a particular case like that, if anything did, if this fishery did not happen, there are programs and services in place. I've already spoken to both the federal and provincial governments, um, not only in a case like this, but there are programs to move them to other employers. So we're not going to see them go home or anything like that. We have many people looking you know, to, uh, to retain them you know, you know, if they had finished their work, and hopefully they will get to work very soon and work through the season. And when they do finish, if we can move forward in that regard, uh, in August or September, we will have programs in place to move them to other employers in Newfoundland and Labrador who are seeking their services and providing them pathways to stay in our province. So we do have plans and we do have solutions to accommodate them. Can you help us understand a little better about your relationship with the Provincial Department of Immigration and the Federal Department? Because the feds have set some very aspirational goals of some 1.4 skilled immigrants over the course of the next three years. The province has received permission to double its capacity for newcomers to this province. So how do you work with the different levels of uh, government? Right. So in, in, in Canada, there's various types of immigration streams. You know, federally, we have a, an LMIA process and there's express entry. There's different programs depending on skill level to bring candidates uh, to Canada. Each province in Canada has negotiated its own arrangement. So like Newfoundland and Labrador as an agreement with, with the federal government for its needs, as do other provinces. So they've done it on a, on a, on a unique basis. The province of Newfoundland uses a provincial nominee program. So employers, you know, have to go through a process as well to, you know, validate their need to hire, whether it be in the food industry, the trucking industry, or automotive, whatever sector they're in, they have to, uh, you know, go through a process with the Office of Immigration to validate the need. And then, of course, we help these employers find suitable candidates 
in our office and our staff are licensed in immigration. There's a regulatory board in Canada, the College of Immigration, and immigration consultants have to be regulated in this body in order to provide immigration advice. So these candidates then are given advice to come here under nominations to become permanent residents, and they come on a work permit, so they work for the employer that sponsored them. And we aim to bring families, to bring husband and wives of you know, multiple family types as well as children and get children in our schools. So we've been doing this now in the province since 2012, and we're continuing to do so with the goal of helping you know, rural communities in, in particular you know, fill gaps in, in the labor market in, in those regards. So the province is fulfilling it under a nomination program, and these people are nominated and eventually become permanent residents of Canada. And if they so choose, they can continue on and apply for citizenship. I appreciate the time. Anything else you'd like to add this morning, Wanda, while we have you? No, I just wanted to thank you for reaching out. You know, it's nice to see that there's concern, and we're very, you know, much in touch with all of the people that are involved here. This is our, you know, we have that motto in our in our business. Our staff are very much um, engaged in the daily activities to ensure that everybody is safe and well taken care of. And we look forward to, you know, continuing to work with the province uh, to, you know, fulfill all the needs as we uh, as our population ages. Appreciate and the time. Thank you again. Oh, thank you, Anna. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Wanda Young, Vice President of Work Global Canada. Interesting numbers from the Association of Seafood Producers. The province has 22 snow crab processing plants that employ between 45 and 125 seasonal temporary foreign workers per plant. I didn't know that to be the case. And also on that front, there's still some focus being given to the fact that the issue regarding Griggs first harvest of their uh, farm salmon in Placentia Bay, some 5,000 metric tons of salmon, it was going to go to OCI's plant in St. Lawrence, but now it's going to go to Bayed Verd and the Quinlan Brothers operation. And of course, some of the argument that the union is making is about the numbers of unionized employees not getting uh, work inside of the Quinlan Brothers plant. So that's an interesting one that we can factor in. As well. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast. newscast. When we come back, the topic is, ex- is absolutely up to you. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Well, first off, it's Nursing Week 2023. Join us on line number one is the president of the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Yvette Coffey. Good morning, Yvette. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Interesting year. The theme this year is Our Nurses, Our Future. Seems pretty on the nose. Well, it is not just nursing future. It's the future of healthcare in Newfoundland and Labrador that is on the line right now. And with over 750 uh, registered nurse vacancies, um, we're at a critical point right now in this province. Obviously. Now, I think I heard from the minister. I couldn't hear it clearly. I was working on something else. I think he said over the last year there's been some 400 registered nurses recruited, but yet nothing changed with the vacancy at 750. Do we happen to know what that 400 involves? Is it nurses recruited abroad or the graduates from nursing schools? Do you happen to know the breakdown inside 400? Uh, no, Patty, I don't have the exact numbers of the breakdown. Uh, we've asked for uh, an update, and I'm hoping to get one uh, this week, actually. Uh, but our nursing vacancies went up. It went up from 614 uh, last spring to 752 in the fall, which is only six months. 
So however many we are recruiting, our biggest issue is the retention of registered nurses and nurse practitioners at this point, John. I wonder how it works, you know, hand in glove with recruiting more and reducing the vacancies would absolutely have some impact on improving work-life balance, opportunity to get some time off, and maybe a reduction of 24-hour shifts and what have you. So what are the keys inside retention? Because government seems to put out a suite of incentives, whether it be for casual nurses to move on to the permanent full-time. But what does retention actually look like, or what should it look like? Well, if you look to our... Um Atlantic counterparts. Nova Scotia has just recently gave upwards of $20,000 as a retention initiative and appreciation to registered nurses and their practitioners who are holding permanent positions. Uh, PEI has a tentative agreement right now which also recognizes permanent nurses. We have to do more to retain the people that we have to show them that their values for their expertise and for what they're doing to keep and hold this system together at this point. And everybody knows we're at the bargaining table, and I won't discuss any you know, details about that, but our members are waiting on this tentative agreement to decide, do I stay in the system? Do I sign up with a private agency and make two to three times the salary? Uh, do I leave nursing altogether? Has there been any move on the ability so easily, by the look of it, for a registered nurse working in the public system to move off to one of the private agencies? Because, obviously, if it was me and I could work less and make more, that sounds really attractive to me. Has anything changed on that front? Are you working on making some changes there? Well, we've had discussions uh, with the Department of Health and with the Premier's office about the use of agency nurses. Um, I mean, it's unprecedented, uh, the money that is being spent on registered nurses uh, with private agencies and nurse practitioners in this province. We're spending upwards, estimated, to be $100 million this year. And that's only two health authorities that I was aware of. The other two health authorities under the old system, before we amalgamated, are also using uh, these private agency nurses. And the issue is... If we say, okay, we're stopping the use of agency nurses in Newfoundland and Labrador, they'll still get a job with private agencies to work in other provinces. So we're, it's a dilemma. And, of course, it would reduce the number of nurses moving into that agency system because leaving the province is a big step versus simply staying in your own home, wherever you are in the province, and just moving from public to private. So I, I get your point uh, there, no question. You know, the nursing week is, you know, some of these weeks would be time to reflect on the importance of whatever discipline we're talking about, healthcare or otherwise, but also there's opportunities and the thoughts surrounding celebrations. Is there a celebratory mood amongst the RNU? Well, we're celebrating registered nurses and nurse practitioners and all nursing professionals in the province this week. We have a number of activities planned uh, online uh, for our members. But, you know, the biggest thing I think this week is that we need the government of Newfoundland and Labrador to recognize that retention is our biggest issue. And we also, you know, we are the lowest paid in the country at the present time. And if we're going to retain those individuals who are currently holding our system together, it's going to cost. And we need government to recognize that and demonstrate it with real action. But this week... I would just like to say thank you to every single nursing profession out there 
that are caring for the people of Newfoundland and Labrador in every single sector of healthcare, including community, long-term care, acute care, whether they're their teachers who are faculty teaching our new students who are going to be registered nurses or licensed practical nurses. And this week is the time to celebrate you. And I would encourage the public to thank all nursing, all nurses in Newfoundland and Labrador this week. And not just this week, but every week. Fair enough. Uh, and as the son of a nurse, <laughs> no problem for me. Uh, event last one. So there was amendments to the act that allowed registered nurses to take on additional training, some three different modules, maybe as long as a year, to be able to prescribe drugs. Also to uh, prescribe uh, diagnostic imaging and then referrals to specialists, all that. The College of Nurses said, oh, this is a great thing. Your group, maybe not so much because there's questions about, will I get paid more for additional duties? And, you know, the supervisory issue, why do you go through the, th- uh, the three training? modules. Can you give us an update, whether it be conversations between yourself and the college or yourself and your group and the provincial government? Because what sounded like a great idea to maximize scope of practice throughout healthcare maybe hasn't echoed the way we thought it might with the registered nurses. Well, um, as you know, we're not involved in anything to do with changes to legislation and increased scope of practice. So we heard about it as everybody else heard about it. Uh, and we welcome it because any increase in scope of practice is welcome. But of course, like you said, that brings into question, you know, classification review about increased duties and workload on registered nurses. We did meet with the college uh, shortly after that announcement and got some more information on it. Not every registered nurse is going to be prescribing or ordering diagnostics. It's going to be specified areas, the health authorities have to have a plan and be on board with it. There's a whole lot of red tape that a registered nurse has to go through, and of course they have to do the learning module. To put it into nutshell, it is more like the regional nurses that we have now on the coast of Labrador, uh, where they do have an advanced scope of practice. And with that advanced scope of practice, of course, there's increased pay. Yeah, I mean, if you're working in a specialized care setting or a really rural or remote setting, that might be absolutely what's required for registered nurses. You just mentioned the coast of Labrador, and I will let you go after this one. There's still calls for a sexually a sexual assault specifically trained nurse in that community. Can you help us understand what that specialized training looks like, and where does it take place? Is it inside offerings from the union? Is it at the school uh, nursing schools, or what happens there? No, this is actually, um, that education is provided uh, through the health authorities. Okay. Uh, and what I know about it, because I, I haven't been privy to uh, all the conversation that's been going on the past few days, but I do know that at St. Clair's, we have emergency uh, room nurses and other registered nurses who have the training uh, for this program. Uh, there's always someone available on call, but I don't know if it's further than... Eastern Health, like the former Eastern Health. I know that the services are offered to Clarence uh, as far as Carabineer, Placentia. Uh, I'm not really sure how much further it is offered and where it's offered throughout the province. Uh, so it's only based out of St. Clair's from my understanding. And if anybody needs the service, oh, as far as Clarenville uh, is what I understand, actually. Uh, that they'll be sent to St. Clair's uh, for this service. So 
I think it needs to be expanded beyond. And I guess with the new uh, Amalgamated Health Authority, that is something that will be a discussion at their table. Appreciate the time this morning, Yvette. Hopefully uh, you and your colleagues have a good nursing week. Thank you so much, Patty. And a big shout out to all registered nurses, nurse practitioners, and other health, other nursing providers throughout the province. Take time to care for yourself this week and celebrate you and all that you do. Thank you for this. Thank you. You're welcome, Yvette. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. It's Yvette Coffey. She's the president of the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador. Okay, let's take a very quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about Community Business Development Corporations, the CBDC. There's some 41 of them peppered across Atlantic Canada. We're going to be speaking with Jennifer Whalen. She's the executive director of Emerald Bay Vert and Springdale offices right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the executive director of CBDC Emerald. That's Jennifer Whalen. Good morning, Jennifer. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, I'm calling today to make an awareness to uh, CBDC Day in Atlantic Canada, uh, most specifically to CBDC Emerald in Bayvert, Green Bay. And that is tomorrow, Wednesday, May the 10th. And uh, we're having an open house at both our locations at 325 Highway 410 in Bayvert at the Bailey Building and 83 Little Bay Road in Springdale located at the College Building Teams Leasing. And uh, we're offering free cake and coffee from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. and a chance to win a basket uh, at both locations valued at over $100. And uh, we encourage people in the Bayvert Green Bay area to come by and meet our staff and learn about our products and services. Where are you? I'm located in Bayvert. Okay. And our other uh, office is in Springdale. CB, the CBDC has a variety, a real suite of offerings. I don't think it's the exact same in every single office across Atlantic Canada. So whether it be with social economy uh, projects, tourism-related matters, extended season, retiree employment agency. Let's go through a couple uh, that, well, for starters, do you have the retiree employment agency offering inside your office? Uh, no, no. What are some of the key programs and services you do have so we can talk about uh, Well, we have our loan products, products which with CBDC, we have some geared specific to youth and uh, first-time entrepreneurs and social enterprises. Uh, we also have business counseling. Uh, we have skills training. We also offer the community, uh, sorry, consulting advisory services program, CAS. And in Newfoundland, it's specific to the business valuation program we also offer. And we also offer the Kickstart and Drive program uh, that lo uh, loans up to $10,000 for youth. And uh, we also um, offer tra uh, training to uh, clients. Inside the world, business loans for youth, young entrepreneurs. So I think we probably are using, what, 18 to 34 as youth? Uh, 18 to 34 for our youth loan uh, with Kickstart. Start, I believe, or Youth Ventures, sorry, that's another program we offer. Youth Ventures is up to 29, 18 to 29, 12 to 29, sorry. It's really tricky. Do you have many youth coming through the door? Because for young entrepreneurs, the thought across the landscape is that getting a loan as a young person, you know, I guess depending on your uh, level of education, your expertise, mm -hmm. the product or the service that you're trying to drive, it is hard. So what's the message to youth out there? Because when I was youth trying to get a loan on that front, it was, it was impossible. I might as well put it that way. It was absolutely impossible yeah, for, sure. for me to get there. Yeah. So how is it different? How do you evaluate these proposals differently at CBDC? Uh, based on uh, the proposal that they present, and if they go through our Youth Ventures program, 
they have a coordinator that's there uh, during May to September that can work with them to help them build, create an idea to build a business plan and to work with, with them with their cash flow and, and ideas to generate revenue. Can even We can even lend to them. Uh, as you know, someone at 19 years old have very low credit, no credit. <laughs> so, um, but we'll take them from 12 if their parent is willing to sign for them. But uh, it's mostly about encouraging them to start their business. And our coordinator actually started Monday with her training, first week in training. And that was Kylie Hall. She'll be working at the Springdale office. So uh, we will certainly be promoting the Youth Ventures program this summer. And youth can certainly go and visit her, reach out to her, and uh, can certainly, uh, we're interested in all youth learning about business. And the sooner they learn about it, the better, of course, for our economy and rural communities. CBDC has, you know, different pockets of money for different types of envelopes, whether it be industry or innovation, pardon me, and technology. We just spoke with a fellow from MISA. So inside that tech world, and Josh and Zach Green were quite young when they started that particular company. Mm -hmm. Do you have focus areas that are more attractive or more important inside your own Emerald office? You know, specifically regarding innovation and tech, because that's a place where we can grow. Traditional industries will, of course, always have a place, but these growth opportunities inside that envelope seem to be more attractive than a lot of other industries most definitely if you're a new business or existing business that want to uh, uh, become more tech savvy even you know funds even software uh, can even take care of any uh, accommodation uh, changes like infrastructure changes to your office or building to uh, accommodate this new technology as well so yeah we have a loan product that is specific to innovation yeah, and if I remember correctly, because I know someone who's tried to go down that road, and they're in Nova Scotia, as a matter of fact, I think it's upwards of $125,000 was on the table, potentially. Uh, mm. Help us understand how you define social enterprise, because there's a little bit of nuance from one organization or to, to another as to what they consider a social enterprise. What does CBDC call them? Uh, we call them social enterprise. Sometimes, you know, it's it's... You can't really class it as not-for-profit because right. you have to make a profit kind of thing, but it's a business model. It's an organization that's ran by volunteers or members as a membership, something like a co-op, and uh, that you know provides a product or service to the area, generates revenue, and puts back into the community. That's the that's the specific, uh, the specific point I was getting to because for many social enterprise is not for profit, but not for profit generally speaking has some sort of funding agency, whether it be from governments one level or another, yeah. for them allowed to operate like that. But mm -hmm. you know, profits not a bad word. Not for profits can grow with reinvestment of money. So there's always a bit of a trick about how people uh, define not for profit. Yeah, if they're producing a product or service that can generate revenue. Yeah, indeed. And that was that is uh, something I really like to promote to the rural communities is social enterprise because, you know, uh, volunteers get burnt out. Uh, but if you generate a revenue where you can employ someone to do all that work and produce a product and employ someone in your community, yeah, it's a great, great announcement for rural communities. Give us the details one more time, Jennifer, for your open house. Uh, it's tomorrow, Wednesday, May the 10th, uh, from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. There will be free cake and coffee, and we're located in Bayvert at 325 Highway 410 at the Bailey, Bailey Building. And in Springdale, we're at 83 Little Bay Road 
at the college building teams leasing. Appreciate your time. Good luck. Thank you. You're welcome, Jennifer. Bye-bye. Bye. Jennifer Whalen, Executive Director at CBDC Emerald. Uh, okay, very quickly, someone uh, sent an email along uh, during the last break regarding a comment I made about the number of te- temporary foreign workers who are working in the province's 22 snow crab pr- processing plants. The, ASA, the ASP, Association for Seafood Producers, say that inside these 22 plants, there are some 45 to 125 seasonal temporary foreign workers per plant. The question being asked, and it's a fair question, I, I guess, is are the plants and their operators simply unable to find people willing to work in the plant? Because there is fairly strict guidelines for getting federal approval for a work visa as a temporary foreign worker. So I'm guessing that the answer is yes. They can find locals to take on those jobs. And we do know the average age of a plant worker is creeping up there year over year, just like in many traditional industries. Uh, average age of a farmer, average age of a fish enterprise owner, fishing enterprise owner, and or a plant worker. So I guess and unless someone can correct me and let me know that plants are willing and wanting to hire TFWs versus locals, but... You know, businesses have to prove fairly clearly that they're unable to get staff in the local area. Now, I guess there's some sort of definition about what constitutes local as well, whether it's uh, within 100 kilometers is generally the way governments look at the definition of local. But, yeah, that's the numbers as produced by the ASP regarding the number of temporary foreign workers. And, of course, I did add to it that the concern, and maybe that's one you shared and want to talk about it on the air, about there was, I guess, some agreement, tentatively or otherwise, that there was going to be an opportunity to uh, process the 5,000 metric tons of farm salmon that Greek operations in Placentia Bay to bring it to St. Lawrence. Now the company has made a business decision, and I don't know if anyone can intervene, including government, that now they're going to take that salmon, five kilograms per, I think was their average weight, and bring it to Beta Verde to be processed at a Quinlan Brothers plant. So, of course, that would frustrate the union, given union representation at the OCI plant in St. Lawrence. Of course, it would frustrate uh, OCI themselves, but I don't know where people think there's an opportunity for government to intervene on uh, what is a private company business decision, unless there was some sort of contractual obligations that weren't honored or met. But anywho, let's check in on the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Time for the 1130 News. When we come back, great opportunity for you to join us live on the program. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free line distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 530 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Thomas, you're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. I wanted to put forth an issue there um, and try to get some clarification and information on and it's regarding the lack of lighting on the on a stretch of the Pitts Memorial Drive. And uh, it's as you leave St. John's and uh, in the West End and get on the Pitts Memorial Drive, you're heading on out there towards Kilbride. And uh, there's a whole stretch uh, there that they have the pole lights in place. But uh, and I counted them one time a few months ago. There were 95. And there were only sporadically six or seven or eight of them working along the way. So uh, I thought that was uh, a sad, a sad state of affairs. 
when all the uh, infrastructure is there, the pole lights are there, but uh, there's no, they're not working. So I, I was wondering, uh, go ahead. No, I, I noticed the same thing. Uh, I do know that there was very recently, within the last month and a half, two months, that the Department of Transportation Infrastructure led a contract valued at around $15 million to replace the, the poles, the wiring between Kilbride and downtown. Uh, so it was sometime in February. So I guess that work is ongoing because everyone has noticed the same thing that's driven it at night. Okay. All right. That's the clarification. But, uh, Patty, I must say, I haven't been on it now in the last couple of months. But uh, I drive it all the time, uh, going to Holyrood and Caligros and so on like that. And, you know, I never noticed this until uh, a friend of mine was visiting from Ontario. And we were driving it uh, late one night, and she commented on it. And uh, and that's what eventually prompted this call. But the point I'm trying to make is that I think they've been out for so long that I and maybe many other drivers just went on and just ignored it, and it was just, it, it wasn't an issue. You're probably right. We become numb to issues that when they extend for the length of time that some of the lighting issues at, on pits were part of the uh, were part of the problem, that you just kind of forget about it because it becomes normal. Uh, so that's that's a fair point you're making there. I don't think that work is going to be completed until around the end of the year. And of course, Pitts Memorial. We went to Costco myself, my wife, on Sunday morning. It's yeah. not a very attractive option at this moment in time, given the construction. It's certainly no speedy way to get anywhere uh, because it's down to one lane in each direction for the most part between town almost out to when you start approaching the exits for Mount Pearl so yeah. it's probably worth avoiding but I do know that the province did let that contract for that work to be done on that stretch of pits okay well I called with the preamble that I'm looking for information and clarification and uh, you provided it thank you so much happy to do it Thomas thanks for the call okay my pleasure Take bye care. bye bye yeah, and then there was always there was questions that I didn't know the answer to regarding who owns and operates and is responsible for the lighting. So by the sound of the contract being let by the province, them, and of course repairs would all be done by Newfoundland Power. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hello. Hello. Uh, yes, this is concerning the problem in Bonavista. Which problem, sir? Uh, well, on the main street of Bonavista, we had a building took down, which was over 100 years old. And down behind our supermarket, Suarez's, we had a house took down, which was 100 years old. Thank you, Patty, for taking my car. Well, what, what happened to the houses, though? What do you mean it got took down? Uh, tore down. Just, you're gone. <laughs> and this was recently. One was. So just the owners of the homes got permission to tear them down? Uh, they must. They must have more poor than anyone else, I guess. Yes. Thank you. I, I, that's it. I, I, that's uh, it, Patty. Thank yeah, you. No problem. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, I don't know what's going on there and who tore them down or what permissions were granted. Uh, and we did follow up on Wanda's call about the fact that she's got a heritage or historical property damaged by fire and the complications in trying to get some repairs done. Because, and like we asked the mayor directly, if you are going to buy a piece of property and it does indeed have a historical or heritage property designation, it brings upon all types of concerns for down the road possibly. Whether it be with uh, renovations that have to be done to a certain spec or standard versus a, a, a building or a home that does not have that designation, 
inflation, and then, of course, for replacement value and how your insurance policy will work. So, uh, like I said to Wanda and I said to Mayor Norman, it's quite curious that someone buying one of these properties wouldn't know up front what they're getting themselves into. Between the realtors and the lawyers in the town or whatever community it might be in, you think that would be an important piece of information to be considered by the prospective buyer. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the Liberal member of the House of Assembly in Buren Grand Bank. That's Paul Pike. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty, and, and thanks for uh, taking my call. Uh, like you said, I represent the beautiful district of Bjorn Grand Bank, and I'm calling in today. Uh, have a like to pass on condolences um, to the family and friends of uh, Mr. Gus Echegarry. Uh Gus certainly was a was a great friend of St. Lawrence, and uh, he was loved by a lot of people in our area. Um, he was certainly as well a strong advocate for the fishery. I don't know what he'd be saying today, <laughs> but uh, Gus was the uh, was uh, the last the last uh, one of these brave souls and rescuer uh, when the USS uh, Pollux and Truxton went aground on the shores uh, on the south coast, Chambers Cove and Little Lawn. Uh, Gus, I think, was around 17 at the time, and uh, his father. Uh, who was leading uh, the uh, the rescue efforts? Was one of the leaders in, the, in, the, in these efforts. Uh, had Gus keeping the far in on the beach, so Gus, you know, certainly had strong, vivid memories of that. And uh, I remember a few years ago, uh, uh, Gus, when I was mayor of St. Lawrence, uh, Gus had a, um, a print done, uh, and he wanted a print that would depict the scene that through his eyes uh, on that fateful day, February 18, 1942. And the picture was done by a local artist, uh, uh, Nancy Malloy. I don't know if you've seen it, Patty, but it's a, it's a beautiful picture, and it certainly captures that event. And, uh, you know, Gus, Gus spoke fondly of that and was in attendance to a number of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, ceremonies and so on and, and, and uh, in, in the town of St. Lawrence over the years. Uh, Gus as well like, was a proud Laurentian, Patty. He was, a, he was a great soccer player. And I guess most of all, like, you know, he, he was an ambassador for the town. He always said he's from St. Lawrence. His family was, his sons were born in St. Lawrence and so on. And he, you know, we were really going to miss him. And uh, like I say, he was dearly loved. So I just wanted to pass on my condolences there, uh, Patty. Oh, absolutely. On the soccer front, not only a player, but a president of Canada Soccer. Oh, pardon me, he was on the board of directors, vice president of Canada Soccer. First person from this province to be inducted in the Canadian Soccer Hall of Fame back in 2007. And insofar as the issue regarding the Truxton and the Pollux, people sometimes lose sight of the fact of just how tragic that was. So at 17 years of age, involved in the rescue efforts, 289 men went into the water, 2003, uh, pardon me, 203 died. So yeah. it's an extremely important and tragic event that's happened in this province. And in addition to that, Gus, at eight years of age, lived through the earthquake and the tsunami that hit St. Lawrence as well, which is really quite something when you add it all up. The tsunami killed 28 people. Hundreds of people were homeless. The rebuild effort took a very long time and was a huge monumental undertaking. Yeah, it was, Patty. And, and again, the 186 survivors of the Pollux and Trucks and Wreck, which was, by the way, the largest d disaster in uh, U.S. naval history. 
um, certainly, uh, you know, uh, people have certainly toured the site from around the province and around the world. It's, it's a beautiful uh, uh, trail designed by Grand, Grand Concourse, and, and we certainly are very proud of it and would encourage people to go out there and just just sit back and just think of what, of, of what happened there and, and, and visualize uh, men being called up over those steep cliffs, because some of the steepest cliffs on the Bjork Peninsula. Well, Patty, uh, thanks for that. And uh, one of the, I, I call for a couple, a couple of more things, that I, if I could. Sure. I, and I'll be as quick as possible. And I know you have other callers waiting. But uh, the... Um, the, I guess I would like to take this opportunity, Patty, to thank the residents of St. Lawrence and other communities in the district uh, who attended a meeting uh, uh, regarding the United, U.S. Memorial Hospital in, uh, in St. Lawrence. Okay. Uh, that meeting was held last Thursday, and uh, Minister Osborne attended, as well as a team from Eastern Health. And the reason, uh, you know, for that is, uh, of course, as you know, uh, the, the hospital in St. Lawrence has been out without emergency services for over a year now, uh, as well as we're experiencing shortages like everyone else and doctors and, and nurses uh, for the most part. Um, you know, the hospital in St. Lawrence, Patty, is, a, you know, uh, and I just wanted to mention this briefly as well. The hospital in St. Lawrence has so much historical significance to the town, it's, it not only serves people in the area, I mean, the communities in there, it's not only St. Lawrence it serves, it serves from uh, Little St. Lawrence to Point May. And, uh, you know, you have um, a historical attachment to that hospital. It was a gift given by uh, the then president, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, to the people of St. Lawrence for the great work they did during this, uh, uh, tie it back to Gosset to Gary during this disaster. And, uh, you know, people feel that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, but people in the region have been using a hospital for years. At first, at first it was a cottage hospital, but it has been rebuilt in the same, uh, on the same grounds as the old hospital. But, Patty, what's ironic about that is uh, former Mayor, Mayor Rousel, uh, I remember him saying one time, you know, that uh, isn't it ironic that the, uh, that the hospital given to the people of St. Lawrence for their heroics during the Pollux and Truxton disaster, uh, in later years, cared for these same people as they lay dying with silicosis, you know, uh, from the mines, which is so true. But anyways, going back to, to the meeting, Patty, it was a great meeting, I thought. Uh, St. Lawrence is now working towards, uh, and we're presented with, uh, the urgent family care model which I think was well-received, Patty, that evening by the majority of people in attendance. Uh, this will, like, address the needs of our residents, and, and the objective uh, is, the, objective, the long-term objectives uh, and short-term would be, like, we would start with probably three days a week and eventually reach seven days a week, uh, something like they're trying to do in Whitburn. So... I think that's probably uh, what the best we can ask for at this point. Uh, the model will allow for other services as well, Patty, like lab x-ray, mental health services, public health, and so on. So this will have a, a positive impact on our community as well as, uh, you know, uh, will certainly help the emergency wait times in Bjorn. 
so we're pleased with that as well. So I just wanted to mention that uh, I was so pleased with, with the turnout. I, I would think that there was a couple of hundred people there. not quite sure, but it looked that, like that anyways. And uh, people were, were very positive. And, uh, you know, like it, it just shows that, you know, we've been working with Eastern Health. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I was working with Eastern Health as mayor, with the council, now the president mayor, and government. And we're working together. Uh, to try and, and solve the problem out there. And that's what needs to happen, is that we, we all need to have a common objective and, and somehow, you know, get together and, and work through this because it, it, is, it is a problem. It's not only Newfoundland and Labrador, it's everywhere, as you know. Fair enough. Some communities are quite displeased with the urgent care tag as opposed to an emergency department. Um, and I'll, I'll leave it up to residents to chime in on that one. I would like to ask you a couple of questions about things down in St. Lawrence in particular. One is that I know the court has ruled uh, an extending bankruptcy protection for Canada Floors Bar until I think the I believe it was the end of this month. There's yeah. huge implications for the people in St. Lawrence. Now, not everyone's going to want to go work back in that mine, but do you have an update for us? Because Floors owed about $100 million to three secured creditors, owes the province some money, and of course the town of St. St. Lawrence itself, with the grant in lieu of taxes, they came up short about, what, $450,000 last year? So do you have a status update? Uh, Patty, really, I I don't have an update as as such. I I do know that the decision will be forthcoming shortly. I do as, as well know that it's it lo- it's looking uh, fairly positive for for the area and for the region, uh, and I do know that a lot of people are still uh, you know waiting for that mine to open. Uh, others, a lot of them have moved on to other jobs, but in my conversations with them, they certainly would be willing to move home and go to work back back in in St. Lawrence, because Patty, you know. It's tough on people having to go away and leave their families, as you know. We have so many Newfoundlanders and Labradorians doing that, and you know, we're we're hoping that, that the mine this time, uh, when the operator comes in, can set some long-term goals for the mine, get the get the wharf back, uh, you know, uh, on track. I mean, that wharf was put there at a great cost, or the, the loading dock, I should say, it's not a wharf, uh, a loading dock, and. Uh, you know, like it can work. It just needs uh, some uh, modifications and so on. So we're 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 all hopeful in St. Lawrence that uh, soon we'll we'll hear some good news. And that's basically where we're to with it. I spoke to the minister uh, a couple of days ago, and uh, we're still waiting. Uh, we're it's certainly a, a lot of discussion going on, uh, and uh, like we're fingers crossed that uh, we'll hear sooner rather than later. Patty, to add to that, I just want to. Take uh, this time as well, if you don't mind, just just a couple of minutes. And on the uh, Greek decision, yeah, uh, I know there's a lot of comments being made on your program and in my district about Greek's decision to uh, process salmon uh, that are being grown grown in Bosentia Bay and then being processed in in Conception Bay. Uh, I have to say, Patty, this was quite a surprise to me. When I was told about this, I, I had no idea it was coming, um, and you know it wasn't what was promised to the people on the Bureau Peninsula. Um, you know, and Patty, you know, being mayor of the town, uh, people have asked me, uh, you know, back then I should say, being mayor of town back then, people have asked me about that and, and about did did Greek uh, commit to being there, and they certainly did. Uh, I went through a number of news articles and so on, uh, 
when I when I got the news and, uh, about this, and, and certainly Greg did commit to uh, to uh, processing in St. Lawrence, and you know we have a we have a great plant there. My understanding in talking with the plant managers that they spend a lot of time and a lot of money getting ready to uh, get this in in order and to get it operational to process the salmon, and uh, you know when I talked to uh, to Greg. Um, the only answer I could get was it was a business decision, and which which you know like I mean it's between two companies and and like you know they, they he wasn't uh, the the the, uh, the person I spoke to wasn't at liberty to tell me anything else other than that it was a business decision we decided to go elsewhere. Uh, when I talked to OCI about it, uh, OCI said well it was a day where they. They were asked to submit a bid one week, and it was awarded to another company the next week. So obviously, nothing happens that fast. And my understanding is that OCI was a partner. So, you know, I I remember Patty back in I guess 2018 or before yeah 2018 I think it was. Uh, we stood, uh, you know, uh, Greg met with St. Lawrence, talked about the. Uh, processing facility, what it would mean to the town, the number of jobs it would mean, uh, you know, extending employment. Our, our plant could possibly now be working year-round. And, um, like, I and, and, and another couple of councillors uh, were asked to go to St. John's to support the uh, the environmental assessment. And I remember standing on the, uh, on the steps of the Supreme Court being interviewed uh, saying, like, this is a great project for the peninsula. It's a great project to bring jobs to the peninsula, to help create sustainability in the Bjorn Peninsula. But, Patty, you know, um, like, they, 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 had us, they had us there with, the, with, with telling us uh, that we were the site, and that's the reason why we were there. We were supporting employment in our area, and uh, we had no indication at all that uh, wouldn't be in St. Lawrence. And, like, you know, the, some people have asked about the, the Patty, the, you know, what was, what was government's role in this? Wasn't that something that was in, in, in a government document when they, uh, they signed a, uh, uh, an MOU for a repayable loan through the, uh, I think it was the Agricultural Capital Equity Program. And, uh, you know, for, uh, for a $30 million loan, and then Patty, as well, at that point in time, ACOA uh, put in $10 million, uh, to support that. But that was a repayable loan as well. But, I mean, all of this was done mm-hmm. with the premise that this would all happen on the Bjorn Peninsula. And, but it's not now. And, and like, I, I listened to uh, – I read a, no, I didn't listen. I, I read a statement put out by FFAW saying that, you know, uh, why did this happen? Why did they move it? Uh, was it had to do with uh, with uh, you know unionized plants versus non unionized and so right. on? So we really can't get the answers. We got. I'd like to. I doubt we're ever going to hear much more about it. But we're out of time for this morning, uh, Paul. But I appreciate your time. Patty, it's really great talking to you. You have a great program, and uh, it's it's a pleasure. What you do for this province is fantastic. Take, uh, take care, most. I appreciate okay. it. Thanks, Paul. Take care. Bye bye. It's Paul Pike, the Liberal Member for Bjorn Grand Bank. Final break. Don't go away. Uh, welcome back to the program. Well, of course, blew through that break. 
unfortunately so. So we don't have time for another caller, but we certainly have plenty of time tomorrow morning when we do indeed pick up this conversation right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.